Random House Audio presents A Clash of Kings, Book Two of A Song of Ice and Fire, by George R. R. Martin, read for you by Roy Dotrice. Prologue The comet's tail spread across the dawn, a red slash that bled above the crags of Dragonstone like a wound in the pink and purple sky. The maester stood on the windswept balcony outside his chambers. It was here the ravens came after long flight. Their droppings speckled the gargoyles that rose twelve feet tall on either side of him, a hellhound and a wyvern, two of the thousand that brooded over the walls of the ancient fortress. When first he came to Dragonstone, the army of stone grotesques had made him uneasy, but as the years passed, he'd grown used to them. Now he thought of them as old friends. The three of them watched the sky together with foreboding. The maester did not believe in omens, and yet, old as he was, Cresson had never seen a comet half so bright, nor yet that color, that terrible color, the color of blood and flame and sunsets. He wondered if his gargoyles had ever seen its like. They had been here so much longer than he had and would still be here long after he was gone, if stone tongues could speak. Such folly! He leaned against the battlement, the sea crashing beneath him, the black stone rough beneath his fingers. Talking gargoyles and prophecies in the sky? I am an old dun man, grown giddy as a child again. Had a lifetime's hard-worn wisdom fled him along with his health and strength, he was a maester, trained and chained in the great citadel of Old Town. What had he come to when superstition filled his head as if he were an ignorant field hand? And yet, and yet, the comet burned even by day now, while pale grey steam rose from the hot vents of Dragonmont behind the castle. And yestermorn, a white raven had brought word from the citadel itself. A word long expected, but no less fearful for all that. Word of summer's end. Omens all. Too many to deny. What does it all mean? He wanted to cry. Uh, Mr. Cress, we have visitors. Pilar spoke softly, as if loath to disturb Cresson's solemn meditations. Had he known what dribble filled his head, he would have shouted. The princess would see the white raven. Ever correct, Pilus called her princess now, as her lord father was a king. King of a smoking rock in a great salt sea, yet a king nonetheless. Her fool is with her. The old man turned away from the dawn, keeping hand on his wyvern to steady himself. Help me to my chair and show them in. Taking his arm, Pilus led him inside. In his youth, Cresson had walked briskly, but he was not far from his eightieth name day now, and his legs were frail and unsteady. Two years passed, he had fallen and shattered a hip, and it had never mended properly. Last year, when he took ill, the Citadel had sent Pilus out from Old Town, mere days before Lord Stannis had closed the aisle. To help him in his labors, it was said, but Cresson knew the truth. Pilus had come to replace him when he died. He did not mind. 
someone must take his place, and sooner than he would like. He let the younger man settle himself behind his books and papers. Go bring her. It is ill to keep a lady waiting. He waved a hand, a feeble gesture of haste from a man no longer capable of hastening. His flesh was wrinkled and spotted, his skin so papery thin that he could see the web of veins and the shape of bones beneath. And how they trembled, these hands of his that had once been so sure and deft. When Pilus returned, the girl came with him, shy as ever. Behind her, shuffling and hopping in that queer sideways walk of his, came her fool. On his head was a mock helm fashioned from an old tin bucket with a rack of deer antlers strapped to the crown and hung with cow bells. With his every lurching step, the bells rang, each with a different voice. Clang-a-dang, bong-dong, ring-a-ling, clong-clong-clong. Who comes to see us so early, Pilus? Crescent said. It's me and Patches, Maester. Guileless blue eyes blinked at him. Hers was not a pretty face, alas. The child had a Lord Father's square jut of jaw and her mother's unfortunate ears, along with a disfigurement all her own, the legacy of a bout of grayscale that had almost claimed her in the crib. Across half a cheek and well down her neck, her flesh was stiff and dead, the skin cracked and flaking, mottled black and grey and stony to the touch. Pilar said we might see the white raven. Indeed you may, Crescent answered as if he would ever deny her. She had been denied too often in her time. Her name was Shireen. She would be ten on her next name day, and she was the saddest child that Maester Cresson had ever known. Her sadness is my shame, the old man thought. Another mark of my failure. Maester Pylus, uh, do me a kindness and bring the bird down from the rookery for Lady Shireen. It would be my pleasure. Pilus was a polite youth, no more than five and twenty, yet solemn as a man of sixty. If only he had more humour, more life in him. That was what was needed here. Grim places needed lightning, not solemnity. And Dragonstone was grim beyond a doubt. A lonely citadel in the wet waste surrounded by storm and salt, with the smoking shadow of the mountain at its back. A maester must go where he is sent. So Crescent had come here with his lord's home twelve years past, and he had served, and served well. Yet he had never loved Dragonstone, nor ever felt truly at home here. Of late, when he woke from restless dreams, in which the red woman figured disturbingly, he often did not know where he was. The fool turned his patched and piebald head to watch Pilus climb the steep iron steps to the rookery. His bells rang with emotion. Under the sea, the birds have scales for feathers, he said, clang-a-langing. I know, I know, oh, ho, ho. Even for a fool, Patchface was a sorry thing. Perhaps once he could evoke gales of laughter with a quip, but the sea had taken that power from him along with half his wits and all his memory. He was soft and obese, subject to twitches and trembles, 
incoherent as often as not. The girl was the only one who laughed at him now, the only one who cared if he lived or died. An ugly little girl and a sad fool, and Maester makes three. Now there is a tale to make men weep. Sit with me, child, Cresson beckoned her closer. This is early to come calling, scarce past dawn. You should be snug in your bed. I had bad dreams, Shireen told him. About the dragons, they were coming to eat me. The child had been plagued by nightmares as far back as Maester Cresson could recall. We have talked of this before, he said gently. The dragons cannot come to life. They are carved a stone, child. In olden days, our island was the westernmost outpost of the great freehold of Valeria. It was the Valerians who raised the citadel, and they had ways of shaping stone since lost to us. A castle must have towers wherever two walls meet at an angle for defense. The Valerians fashioned these towers in the shape of dragons to make their fortress seem more fearsome, just as they crowned their walls with a thousand gargoyles instead of simple crenellations. He took her small pink hand in his own frail, spotted one and gave it a gentle squeeze. So you see, there's nothing to fear. Shireen was unconvinced. What about the thing in the sky? Dalla and Matrice were talking by the well, and Dalla said she heard the red woman tell Mother that it was dragon's breath. If the dragons are breathing, doesn't that mean they're coming to life? The red woman, Maester Cresson thought sourly, ill enough that she's filled the head of the Mother with her madness, must she poison the daughter's dreams as well? He would have a stern word with Dalla, warn her not to spread such tales. The thing in the sky is a comet, sweet child, a star with a tail lost in the heavens. It will be gone soon enough, never to be seen again in our lifetimes. Watch and see. Shireen gave a brave little nod. Mother says that the white raven means it's not summer any more. That is so, my lady. The white ravens fly only from the citadel. The crescent's fingers went to the chain about his neck. Each link forged from a different metal, each symbolizing his mastery of another branch of learning, the maester's collar, mark of his order. In the pride of his youth he had worn it easily, but now it seemed heavy to him, the metal cold against his skin. They are larger than other ravens, and more clever, bred to carry only the most important messages. This one came to tell us that the conclave has met, considered the reports and measurements made by maesters all over the realm, and declared this great summer done at last. Ten years, two turns, and sixteen days it lasted, the longest summer in living memory. Will it get cold now? Shireen was a summer child and had never known true cold. In time, Cressin replied. If the gods are good, they will grant us a warm autumn and bountiful harvests, so that we might prepare for the winter to come. The small folk said that a long summer meant an even longer winter, but the maester saw no reason to frighten the child with such tales. Patchface rang his bells. 
It is always summer under the sea, intoned. The merwives wear ninny moans in their hair and weave gowns of silver seaweed. I know, I know, oh, oh. Shireen giggled. I should like a gown of silver seaweed. Under the sea, it snows up, said the fool, and the rain is dry as bone. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Will it truly snow? the child asked. It will, Crescent said, uh, but not for years yet, I pray, and then not for long. Ah, here is Pilus with the bird. Shireen gave a cry of delight. Even Crescent had to admit the bird made an impressive sight, white as snow and larger than any hawk, with the bright black eyes that meant it was no mere albino, but a true-bred white raven of the citadel. Here, he called. The raven spread its wings, leapt into the air, and flapped noisily across the room to land on the table beside him. I'll see to your breakfast now, Pilus announced. Crescent nodded. This is Lady Shireen, he told the raven. The bird bobbed its pale head up and down as if it were bowing. Lady, it croaked, lady. The child's mouth gaped open. It talks. A, a few words. As I said, they are clever, these birds. Clever bird, clever man, clever, clever fool, said Patchface, jangling. Oh, clever, clever, clever fool, he began to sing. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. He sang, hopping from one foot to the other and back again. The shadows come to stay, my lord, stay, my lord, stay, my lord. He jerked his head with each word, the bells in his antlers sending up a clangor. The white raven screamed and went flapping away to perch on the iron railing of the rookery stairs. Shireen seemed to grow smaller. He sings that all the time. I told him to stop, but he won't. He makes me scared. Make him stop. And how do I do that? The old man wondered. Once I might have silenced him forever, but now... Patchface had come to them as a boy. Lord Stephen, of cherished memory, had found him in Volantis, across the narrow sea. The king, the old king, Ares II Targaryen, who had not been quite so mad in those days, had sent his lordship to seek a bride for Prince Rhaegar, who had no sisters to wed. We have found the most splendid fool, he wrote Crescent, a fortnight before he was to return home from his fruitless mission. Only a boy, yet nimble as a monkey, and witty as a dozen courtiers. He juggles and riddles and does magic, and he can sing prettily in four tongues. We have bought his freedom, and hope to bring him home with us. Robert will be delighted with him, and perhaps in time he will even teach Stannis how to laugh. It saddened Crescent to remember that letter. No one had ever taught Stannis how to laugh, least of all the boy of Patchface. The storm came up suddenly, howling, and Shipbreaker Bay proved the truth of its name. The Lord's two-masted galley, Windproud, broke up within sight of his castle. From its parapets, his two eldest sons had watched as their father's ship was smashed against the rocks and swallowed by the waters. A hundred oarsmen and sailors went down with Lord Stephen Baratheon and his lady wife, and for days thereafter every tide left a fresh crop of swollen corpses on the strand below Storm's End.
The boy washed up on the third day. Maester Crescent had come down with the rest to help put names to the dead. When they found the fool, he was naked, his skin white and wrinkled, and powdered with wet sand. Crescent had thought him another corpse, but when Jommy grabbed his ankles to drag him off to the burial wagon, the boy coughed water and sat up. To his dying day, Jommy had sworn that Patchface's flesh was clammy cold. No one ever explained those two days the fool had been lost in the sea. The fisherfolk liked to say a mermaid had taught him to breathe water in return for his seed. Patchface himself had said nothing. The witty, clever lad that Lord Stephen had written of never reached Storm's End. The boy they found was someone else, broken in body and mind, hardly capable of speech, much less of wit. Yet his fool's face left no doubt of who he was. It was the fashion in the free city of Volantis to tattoo the faces of slaves and servants. From neck to scalp, the boy's skin had been patterned in squares of red and green motley. "'The wretch is mad and in pain and no use to anyone, least of all himself,' declared Earl Sir Harbert, the castellan of Storm's End in those years. "'The kindest thing you could do for that one is to fill his cup with the milk of the puppy, a painless sleep, and there's an end to it. He'd bless you if he had the wit for it.' But Crescent had refused and in the end he had won. Whether Patchface had gotten any joy of that victory, he could not say, not even today, so many years later. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. The fool sang on, swinging his head and making his bells clang and clatter. Bong, dong, ring-a-ling, bong, dong. Lord, the white raven shrieked. Lord, lord, lord. A fool will sing what he will, the maester told his anxious princess. You must not take his words to heart. On the morrow he may remember another song, and this one will never be heard again. He can sing prettily in four tongues, Lord Stephen had written. Pilus strode through the door. Maester, pardons. You have forgotten the porridge, Crescent said, amused. That was most unlike Pilus. Maester, Sir Davis returned last night. They were talking of it in the kitchen. I thought you would want to know at once. Davis? Last night, you say? Where is he? With the king. They have been together most of the night. There was a time when Lord Stannis would have woken him, no matter the hour, to have him there to give his counsel. I should have been told, Crescent complained. I should have been woken. He disentangled his fingers from Shireen's. Pardons, my lady, but I must speak with your lord father. Pilus, give me your arm. There are too many steps in this castle, and it seems to me they add a few every night, just to vex me. Shireen and Patchface followed them out, but the child soon grew restless with the old man's creeping pace and dashed ahead, the fool lurching after her with his cowbells clanging madly. Castles are not friendly places for the frail, Crescent was reminded as he descended the turnpike stairs of Sea Dragon Tower. Lord Stannis would be found in the chamber of the painted table atop the stone drum, Dragonstone's central keep, 
so named for the way its ancient walls boomed and rumbled during storms. To reach him, they must cross the gallery, pass through the middle and inner walls with their guardian gargoyles and black iron gates, and ascend more steps than Crescent had cared to contemplate. Young men climbed steps two at a time, for old men with bad hips, every one was of torment. But Lord Stannis would not think to come to him, so the maester resigned himself to the ordeal. He had pilots to help him, at the least, and for that he was grateful. Shuffling along the gallery, they passed before a row of tall arched windows with commanding views of the outer bailey, the curtain wall, and the fishing village beyond. In the yard, archers were firing at practice butts to the call of Notch! Draw! Loose! The arrows made a sound like a flock of birds taking wing. Guardsmen strode the wall walks, peering between the gargoyles on the host camp without. The morning air was hazy with the smoke of cook fires as three thousand men sat down to break their fasts beneath the banners of their lords. Past the sprawl of the camp, the anchorage was crowded with ships. No craft that had come within sight of Dragonstone this past half-year had been allowed to leave again. Lord Stannis's fury, a triple-decked war galley of three hundred oars, looked almost small beside some of the big-bellied carracks and cogs that surrounded her. The guardsmen outside the stone drum knew the maesters by sight and passed them through. Wait here, Cresson told Pylos within. It's best I see him alone. It's a long climb, maester, Crescent smiled. Y you think I have forgotten? I have climbed these steps so often I know each one by name. Halfway up, he regretted his decision. He had stopped to catch his breath and ease the pain in his hip when he heard the scuff of boots on stone and came face to face with Sir Davis Seaworth descending. Davis was a slight man, his low birth written plain upon a common face. A well-worn green cloak, stained by salt and spray, and faded from the sun, draped his thin shoulders over brown doublet and breeches that matched brown hair and eyes. About his neck, a pouch of worn leather hung from a thong. His small beard was peppered with grey, and he wore a leather glove on his maimed left hand. When he saw Crescent... He checked his descent. Sir Davis, the maester said, when did you return? In the black of morning. <laughs> My favorite time. It was said that no one ever handled a ship by night half so well as Sir Davis shorthand. Before Lord Stannis had knighted him, he had been the most notorious and elusive smuggler in all the Seven Kingdoms. And? The man shook his head. It is as you warned him. They will not rise, maester. Not for him. <laughs> they do not love him. No, Crescent thought. Nor will they ever. He is strong, able, just... I, just past the point of wisdom. Yet it is not enough. It has never been enough. You spoke to them all... Oh, no, only those that would see me. They do not love me either, these highborns. To them I'll always be the onion knight. His left hand closed, 
stubby fingers locking into a fist. Stannis had hacked the ends off at the last joint, all but the thumb. I brought bread with Gollian Swan and old Penrose, and the task consented to a midnight meeting in a grove. The others, well, Beric Dundarian has gone missing. Some say dead. And Lord Caron is with Renly, Bryce the Orange, of the Rainbow Guard. The Rainbow Guard? Renly's made his own King's Guard, <laughs> the one-time smuggler explained. But these seven don't wear white. Each one has its own colour. Loras Tyrell's their Lord Commander. It was just the sort of notion that would appeal to Renly Baratheon, a splendid new order of knighthood, with gorgeous new raiment to proclaim it. Even as a boy, Renly had loved bright colours and rich fabrics, and he had loved his games as well. Look at me! He would shout as he ran, laughing through the halls of Storm's End. Look at me! I'm a dragon! Or, look at me! I'm a wizard! Or, look at me! Look at me! I'm the rain god! The bold little boy, with wild black hair and laughing eyes, was a man grown now, one and twenty, and still he played his games. Look at me. I'm a king, Crescent thought sadly. Oh, Renly, Renly, dear sweet child, do you know what you're doing? And would you care if you did? Is there anyone who cares for him but me? What reasons did the lords give for their refusals? He asked Sir Davis. Well, as to that, some gave soft words and some blunt. Some made excuses, some promises, some only lied, he shrugged. In the end, words are just wind. You could bring him no hope. Only the false sort, and I'd not do that, Davis said. He had the truth for me. Maester Cresson remembered the day Davis had been knighted after the siege of Storm's End. Lord Stannis and a small garrison had held the castle for close to a year against the great host of Lords Tyrell and Redwine. Even the sea was closed against them, watched day and night by Redwine galleys flying the burgundy banners of the arbor. Within Storm's End, the horses had long since been eaten. The dogs and cats were gone, and the garrison was down to roots and rats. Then came a night when the moon was new and black clouds hid the stars. Cloaked in that darkness, Davis the smuggler had dared the red wine cordon and the rocks of Shipbreaker Bay alike. His little ship had a black hull, black sails, black oars, and a hold crammed with onions and salt fish. Little enough, yet it had kept the garrison alive long enough for Eddard Stark to reach Storm's End and break the siege. Lord Stannis had rewarded Davis with choice lands on Cape Roth, a small keep and a knight's honours. But he had also decreed that he lose a joint of each finger of his left hand to pay for all his years of smuggling. Davis had submitted on the condition that Stannis wield the knife himself. He would accept no punishment from lesser hands. The Lord had used a butcher's cleaver, the better to cut clean and true. Afterward, Davis had chosen the name Seaworth for his new-made house, and he took for his banner a black ship on a pale grey field with an onion on its sails. 
the one-time smuggler was fond of saying that Lord Stannis had done him a boon by giving him four less fingernails to clean and trim. No, Crescent thought, a man like that would give no false hope, nor soften a hard truth. Sir Davis, a truth can be a bitter draught, even for a man like Lord Stannis. He thinks only of returning to King's Landing in the fullness of his power to tear down his enemies and claim what is rightfully his. Yet now, if he takes a meagre host to King's Landing, it will only be to die. He does not have the numbers. I told him as much, but you know his pride. Davis held up his gloved hand. My fingers will grow back before that man bends to sense. The old man sighed. You have done all you could. Now I must add my voice to yours. Wearily, he resumed his climb. Lord Stannis Baratheon's refuge was a great round room with walls of bare black stone and four tall, narrow windows that looked out to the four points of the compass. In the centre of the chamber was the great table from which it took its name, a massive slab of carved wood fashioned at the command of Aegon Targaryen in the days before the conquest. The painted table was more than fifty feet long, perhaps half that wide at its widest point, but less than four feet across at its narrowest. Aegon's carpenters had shaped it after the land of Westeros, sawing out each bay and peninsula until the table nowhere ran straight. On its surface, darkened by near three hundred years of varnish, were painted the seven kingdoms, as they had been in Aegon's day, rivers and mountains, castles and cities, lakes and forests. There was a single chair in the room, carefully positioned in the precise place that Dragonstone occupied off the coast of Westeros, and raised up to give a good view of the tabletop. Seated in the chair was a man in a tight-laced leather jerkin and breeches of rough-spun brown wool. When Maester Cresson entered, he glanced up. I knew you would come, old man, whether I summoned you or no. There was no hint of warmth in his voice. There seldom was. Stannis Baratheon, Lord of Dragonstone, and by the grace of the gods, rightful heir to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, was broad of shoulder and sinewy of limb, with a tightness to his face and flesh that spoke of leather, cured in the sun until it was as tough as steel. Hard was the word men used when they spoke of Stannis, and hard he was. Though he was not yet five and thirty, only a fringe of thin black hair remained on his head, circling behind his ears like the shadow of a crown. His brother the late King Robert, had grown a beard in his final years. Maester Cresson had never seen it, but they said it was a wild thing, thick and fierce. As if in answer, Stannis kept his own whiskers cropped tight and short. They lay like a blue-black shadow across his square jaw and the bony hollows of his cheeks. His eyes were open wounds beneath his heavy brows, a blue as dark as the sea by night. His mouth would have given despair to even the drollest of fools. It was a mouth made for frowns and scowls and sharply worded commands, all thin pale lips and clenched muscles, a mouth that had forgotten how to smile, 
and had never known how to laugh. Sometimes, when the world grew very still and silent of a night, Maester Cresson fancied he could hear Lord Stannis grinding his teeth half a castle away. Once you would have woken me, the old man said. Once you were young, now you're old and sick and need your sleep. Stannis had never learned to soften his speech, to dissemble or flatter. He said what he thought, and those who did not like it could be damned. I knew you'd learn what Davis had to say soon enough. You always do, don't you? I would be of no help to you if I did not, Cresson said. I met Davis on the stairs. And he told you all, I suppose. I should have had that man's tongue shortened along with his fingers. He would have made you a poor envoy, then. He made me a poor envoy in any case. The storm lords will not rise for me. It seems they do not like me, and the justice of my cause means nothing to them. The cravenly ones will sit behind their walls, waiting to see how the wind rises, and who is likely to triumph. The bold ones will have already declared for Renly. For Renly? He spat out the name like poison on his tongue. Your brother has been the Lord of Storm's End these past thirteen years. These lords are his sworn bannermen. His, Stannis broke in, when by rights they should be mine. I never asked for Dragonstone. I never wanted it. I took it because Robert's enemies were here, and he commanded me to root them out. I built his fleet and did his work. "'dutiful as a younger brother should be to an elder, "'as Renly should be to me. "'And what was Robert's thanks? "'He names me Lord of Dragonstone "'and gives Storm's End and its incomes to Renly. "'Storm's End belonged to House Baratheon for three hundred years. "'By rights it should have passed to me "'when Robert took the Iron Throne.' "'It was an old grievance, deeply felt, "'and never more so than now. "'Here was the heart of his Lord's weakness.' For Dragonstone, old and strong though it was, commanded the allegiance of only a handful of lesser lords, whose stony island holdings were too thinly peopled to yield up the men that Stannis needed. Even with the sail swords he had brought across the narrow sea from the free cities of Myrrh and Lice, the host camped outside his walls was far too small to bring down the power of House Lannister. Did you an injustice? Maester Cresson replied carefully. Yet he had sound reasons. Dragonstone had long been the seat of House Targaryen. He needed a man's strength to rule here, and Renly was but a child. He's a child still, Stannis declared, his anger ringing loud in the empty hall. A spin child who thinks to snatch the crown off my brow. What has Renly ever done to earn a throne? He sits in council and jests with Littlefinger, and at Tawny's he dons his splendid suit of armour, allows himself to be knocked off his horse by a better man. That is just my brother, Ray, who thinks he ought to be a kid. I ask you, why did the gods inflict me with brothers? I can't answer for the gods. You seldom answer at all these days, it seems to me. Who maces for Renly? Eh, perchance I should send for him. I make his counsel better. What do you think this maester said when brother decided to steal my crown? What counsel did your colleague offer to this traitor blood of mine? It would surprise me if Lord Renly sought counsel, Your Grace. 
The youngest of Lord Stephen's three sons had grown into a man bold but heedless, who acted from impulse rather than calculation. In that, as in so much else, Rendy was like his brother Robert, and utterly unlike Stannis. Your grace, Stannis repeated bitterly, you mock me with a king's style. Yet what am I of? Dragonstone and a few rocks in the narrow sea? There is my kingdom. He descended the steps of his chair to stand before the table, his shadow falling across the mouth of the black water and the painted forest where King's Landing now stood. There he stood, brooding over the realm he sought to claim. So near at hand, yet so far away. Tonight I am to stop with my lord's bannermen, such as they are, Celtigar, Valerian, Bar-Eman, a whole paltry lot of them. A crop, if truth be told, but they are what my brothers have left me. That Lysine pirate, Salador San, will be there for the latest tally of what I owe him, and Morish, the merman, will caution me with talk tides and autumn gales, while Lord Sunglass tis piously of the Will of Seven. Celtigar will want to know which storm lords are joining us. Valerian will threaten to take his levies home unless we strike at once. What am I to tell them? What must I do now? Your true enemies are the Lannisters, my lord, Maester Cresson answered. If you and your brother were to make common cause against them... I will not treat with Renly, Stannis answered in a tone that broke no argument. Not while he calls himself a king. Not Ray, then, the Maester yielded. His lord was stubborn and proud. When he had said his mind, there was no changing it. Others might serve your needs as well. Eddard Stark's son has been proclaimed king in the north, with all the powers of Winterfell and River Run behind him. A green boy, said Stas, and another false king. Am I to accept a broken realm? Surely half a kingdom is better than none, Crescent said. And if you help the boy avenge his father's murder... Why should I avenge Eddard Stark? The man was nothing to me. Oh, Robert loved him, to be sure. Loved as other... Often did I hear that. I was his brother, not Ned Stark, but you would never have known it by the way he treated me. I held Storm's End for him, watching good men starve while Mace Tyrell and Paxter Rwine feasted with sight of my walls. Did Robert thank me? No. He thanked Ark for lifting the siege when we were rats and radishes. I built fleet at Robert's command, took Dragonstone in his name, did he take my hand and say, Well done, brother, whatever I'd do without you? No, he blamed me for letting Willem Darry steal away Ceres and the babe. As if I could have stopped it. I sat in his council for fifteen years, helping John Aaron rule his realm while Robert drank and awed. And when John died, did my brother name me his hand? No, he went galloping off to his dear friend Ned Stark and offered him the honour. And small good it did either of them. Be that as it may, my lord, Maester Crescent said gently. Great wrongs have been done you, but the past is dead. The future may yet be won if you join with the Starks. There are others you might sound out as well. What of Lady Aaron? If the Queen murdered her husband, surely she will want justice for him. She has a young son, John Aaron's heir. If you were to betroth Shireen to him... The boy is weak and sickly, Lord Stannis objected. Even his father saw how it was when he asked me to foster him on Dragonstone. 
Services of page might have done him good, but that damnable Lester had Lord Aaron poisoned before it could be done, and now Lysa hides him in the Eyrie. She'll never part with a boy, I promise you that. Then you must send Shireen to the Eyrie, the maester urged. Dragonstone is a grim home for a child. Let her fool go with her, so she will have a familiar face about her. Familiar and hideous. Stannis furrowed his brow in thought. Still, perhaps it is worth the thing. Must the rightful lord of the kingdoms beg for help from widow women and usurpers? A woman's voice asked sharply. Mason turned and bowed his head. My lady, he said, grinned. He had not heard her enter. Lord Stannis scowled. I do not beg of anyone. Mind you, remember that woman. I am pleased to hear it, my lord. Lady Solis was as tall as her husband, thin of body and thin of face, with prominent ears, a sharp nose, and the faintest hint of a moustache on her upper lip. She plucked it daily and cursed it regularly, yet it never failed to return. Her eyes were pale, her mouth stern, her voice a whip. She cracked it now. Lady Aaron owes you her allegiance, as do the Starks and your brother Renly, and all the rest. You are the one king. It would not be fitting to plead and bargain with them for what is rightfully yours by the grace of God. God, she said, not gods. The red woman had won her heart and soul, turning her from the gods of the seven kingdoms, both old and new, to worship the one they called Lord of Light. Your God can keep his grace. Lord Stannis, who did not share his wife's fervent youth. It's swords I need, not blessings. Jab an army hidden somewhere that you've not told me. There was no affection in his tone. Stannis had always been uncomfortable around women, even his own wife. When he had gone to King's Landing to sit at Robert's council, it left Solis on Dragonstone with their daughter. His letters had been few, his visits few. He did his duty in the marriage bed once or twice a year, Took no joint, and the sons he had once hoped for had never come. My brothers and uncles and cousins have armies, she told him. Haas Florent will rally your banner. Haas Flint can feed two thousand swords at best. It was to stand you the strength of every kingdom. And you have a great deal more faith in your brothers and uncles than I do, my lady. The Florent lands lie too close to Highgarden for your lord uncle to risk Mace Tyrell's wrath. There is another way. Lady Solis moved close. Look out your way, Lord. There is a sign I've waited for, blazoned on the sky. Red it is, the red of flame, red for the fiery heart of the true God. It is his banner, and yours. See how it unfurls across the heavens like a dragon's hot breath. And you, the Lord of Dragonstone. It means your time has come, Your Grace. Nothing is more certain. You are meant to sail from this desolate rock, as Aegon the Conqueror once sailed, to sweep all before you as he did. Only say the word, embrace the power of the Lord of Light. How many swords will the Lord of Light put into my hand? Stannis demanded again. All you need, his wife promised. The swords of Storm's End and Highgarden for Art, and all their lordsmen. Davis would tell you different, said. Those swords worn to Renly. They love my charming young brother, as they once loved it, and as they have never loved me. Yes, she answered, but Renly would die. Stannis looked at his lady with narrowed eyes until Crescent couldn't hold his tongue. 
It's not to be thought, Your Grace. Whatever follies Renly has committed... Follies? I call them treasons. Stannis turned back to his wife. My brother is young and strong, and he has a vast host around him, and the rainbow knights of his. Millicent has gazed into the flames and seen him dead. Crescent was horror-struck. Fratricide? I thought this is evil, unthinkable. Please listen to me. Lady Celise gave him a measured look. And what will you tell him, Maester? How he might win half a kingdom if he goes to the Starks on his knees and sells our daughter to Lysa Aaron? I've heard your counsel, Crescent, Lord Stannis said. Now I was. You ask me. Mr. Crescent bent a stiff knee. He could feel Lady Selyse's eyes on his back as he shuffled slowly across the room. By the time he reached the bottom of the steps, it was all he could do to stand erect. Help me, he said to Pylos. When he was safe back in his own rooms, Crescent sent the younger man away and limped to his balcony once more to stand between his gargoyles and stare to sea. One Salador San's warship was sweeping past the castle, her gaily striped hull slicing through the grey-green waters as her oars rose and fell. He watched until she vanished behind a headland. Would that my affairs could vanish so easily, and he lived so long for this? When a maester donned his collar, he put aside the hope of children. Yet Crescent had offered a father nonetheless, Robert, Stannis, Renly, three sons he had raised after the angry sea claimed Lord Stephen. He'd done so ill that now he must watch one kill the other. He could not allow it, would not allow it. The woman was at the heart of it, not the Lady Solis, the other one, the red woman. The servants had named her, afraid to speak her name. I will speak her name, Crescent told his stole-held hound. Melisandre, her. Melisandre of Ashai. Sorceress, shadowbinder, and priestess to Relor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. Melisandre, whose madness must not be able to spread beyond Dragonstone. His chambers seemed dim and gloomy after the brightness of the morning. With thumb hands, the old man lit a candle and carried a workroom beneath the rookery stair, where his ointments, potions, and middens stood neatly on their shelves. On the bottom shelf, behind a row of salves in squat clay jars, he found a vial of indigo glass no larger than his little finger. It rattled when he shook it. Crescent blew away a layer of dust and carried it back to his table. Collapsing into his chair, he pulled the stopper and spilled out the vial's contents. A dozen crystals, no larger than seeds, rattled across the parchment he'd been reading. They shone like jewels in the candlelight, so purple that the mace found himself thinking that he had never truly seen the color before. The chain around his throat felt very heavy. He touched one of the crystals lightly with the tip of his little finger. Such a small thing to hold the power of life and death. It was from a certain plant that grew only on the islands of the Jade Sea half a world away. The leaves had to be aged and soaked in a wash of limes and sugar water and certain rare spices from the summer isles. Afterward, they could scarred it. 
but the bone must be thickened with ash and allowed to crystallize. The process was slow and difficult, the necessaries costly and hard to acquire. The alchemists of lice knew the way of it, though, and the faceless men of Bravos, maesters of his order as well, though it was not something talked about beyond the walls of the citadel. All the world knew that a maester forged his silver link when he had learned the art of healing. But the world preferred to forget that men who to heal also knew how to kill. Crescent no longer recalled the name the Yashai gave the leaf, or the lysine poison as the crystal. In the citadel it was simply called the Strangler. Dissolved in wine, it would make the muscles of a man's throat clench tighter than any fist, shutting off his windpipe. They said a victim's face turned as purple as the little crystal seed from which his death was grown. But so too did a man choking on a morsel of food. And this very night Lord Stannis would feast his banner men, his lady wife, and the red woman, Millicent of a shite. I must rest, Maester Crescent told himself. I must have all my strength come dark. My hands must not shake, nor my courage flag. It's a dreadful thing to do, yet it must be done. If there are guards, surely they will forgive me. He had slept so poorly of late, and nap would refresh him for the ordeal ahead. Wearily he tottered off to his bed. Yet when he closed his eyes, he could still see the light of the comet, red and fiery and vividly alive amidst the darkness of his dreams. Perhaps it is my comet, he thought drowsily at the last, just before sleep took him, an omen of blood, foretelling murder, yes. When he woke, it was full dark. His bedchamber was black, and every joint in his body ached. Crescent pushed himself up, his head throbbing. Clutching for his cane, he rose unsteadily to his feet. So late, he thought, they did not summon me. He was always summoned for feasts, seated near the salt, close to Lord Stannis. His face swam up before him. Not the man he was, but the boy he had been, standing cold in the shadows while the sun shone on his elder brother. Whatever he did, Robert had done first and better. Poor boy, he must hurry for his sake. The maester found the crystals where he had left them and scooped them off the parchment. Crescent owned no hollow rings, such as poisons of lice were said to favour, but a myriad of pockets, great and small, were sewn inside the loose sleeves of his robe. He secreted the strangler seeds in them, threw open his door and called, Pylus, where are you? When he heard no reply, he called again, loud, Pylus, I need help. Still, there came no answer. That was queer. The young maester had his cell only half turned down the stairs, within easy earshot. In the end, Crescent had to shout for the servant. Make haste, he told them. I have slept too long. They will be feasting by now, drinking. I should have been woken. It happened to Maester Pylos. Truly, he did not understand. Again, he had to cross the long gallery. A light wind whispered through the great windows, sharp with the smell of the sea. Torches flickered along the walls of Dragonstone, and in the camp beyond he could see hundreds of cook-fires burning 
as if a field of stars had fallen to the earth. Above the comet blazed red and malevolent. I am too old and wise to fear such things, the maester told him. The doors of the great hall were set in the mouth of a stone dragon. He told the servants to leave him outside. It would be better to enter alone. He must not appear feeble. Leaning heavily on his cane, Crescent climbed the last few steps and hobbled beneath the gateway teeth. A pair of guardsmen opened the heavy red doors before him, unleashing a sudden blast of noise and light. Crescent stepped down into the dragon's maw. Over the clatter of knife and plate and the low murmur of table talk, he heard Patchface singing, Dance, my lord, dance, my lord, to the compliment of jangling cowbells, the same dreadful song he'd sung that morning. The shadows come to stay, my lord, stay, my lord, stay, my lord. The lower tables were crowded with knights, archers, and cell-sword captains, tearing apart loaves of black bread to soak in their fish stew. Here there was no loud laughter, no raucous shouting such as marred the dignity of other men's feasts. Lord Stannis did not permit such. Crescent made his way toward the raised platform where the Lord sat with the King. He had to step wide around Patchface. Dancing, his bells ringing, the fool neither saw nor heard his approach. As he hopped from one leg to the other, Patchface lurched into Crescent, knocking his cane out from under him. They went crashing down together amidst the rushes in a tangle of arms and legs, while a sudden gale of laughter went up around them. No doubt it was a comical sight. Patchface sprawled half on top of him, motley fool's face pressed close to his own. He had lost his tin helm with his antlers and bells. Under the sea, you fall up, he declared. I know, I know, oh, ho, ho. <laughs> Giggling, the fool rolled off, bounded to his feet, and did a little dance. Trying to make the best of it, the maester smiled feebly and struggled to rise. But his hip was in such pain that for a moment he was half afraid that he had broken it all over again. He felt strong hands grasp him under the arms and lift him back to his feet. "'Thank you, sir,' he murmured, turning to see which knight had come to his aid. "'Mister,' said Lady Millicent, her deep voice flavoured with the music of the Jade Sea. "'You ought to take more care.' As ever she wore red, head to heel, a long loose gown of flowing silk as bright as fire, with dagged sleeves and deep slashes in the bodice, that showed glimpses of a darker, blood-red fabric beneath. Around her throat was a red-gold choker tighter than any maester's chain, ornamented with a single great ruby. Her hair was not the orange or strawberry colour of common red-haired men, but a deep burnished copper that shone in the light of the torches. Even her eyes were red, but her skin was smooth and white, unblemished, pale as cream. Slender she was, graceful, taller than most knights, with full breasts and narrow waist and a heart-shaped face. Men's eyes that once found her did not quickly look away, not even a maester's eyes. Many called her beautiful. She was not beautiful. She was red and terrible and red. 
I thank you, my lady. A man your age must look to where he steps. Melisande said courteously. The night is dark and full of terrors. He knew the phrase, some prayer of her faith. It makes no matter. I have a faith of my own. Only children fear the dark, he told her. Yet even as he said the words, he heard Patchface take up his song again. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. Now here is a riddle, Melisande said. A clever fool and a foolish wise man. Bending, she picked up Patchface's helm from where it had fallen and set it on Crescent's head. The cowbells rang softly as the tin bucket slid down over his ears. A crown to match your chain, Lord Maester, she announced. All around them, men were laughing. Crescent pressed his lips together and fought to still his rage. She thought he was feeble and helpless, but she would learn otherwise before the night was done. Old he might be, yet he was still a maester of the citadel. I need no crown but truth, he told her, removing the fool's helm from his head. There are truths in this world that are not taught at Old Town. Melisande turned from him in a swirl of red silk and made her way back to the high table where King Stannis and his queen were seated. Crescent handed the antlered tin bucket back to Patchface and made to follow. Maester Pylos sat in his place. The old man could only stop and stare. Maester Pylos, he said at last, you, uh, you did not wake me. His grace commanded me to let you rest. Pylos had at least the grace to blush. He told me you are not needed here. Crescent looked over the knights and captains and lords sitting silent. Lord Celtigar, aged and sour, wore a mantle patterned with red crabs picked out in garnets. Handsome Lord Valarian chose sea-green silk, the white-gold seahorse at his throat, matching his long, fair hair. Lord Bar Eamon, that plump boy of fourteen, was swathed in purple velvet trimmed with white seal. Sir Axel Florent remained homely even in russet and fox fur. Pious Lord Sunglass wore moonstones at throat and wrist and finger, and the Lycine captain, Salador San, was a sunburst of scarlet satin, gold and jewels. Only Sir Davis dressed simply, in brown doublet and green wool mantle, and only Sir Davis met his gaze, with pity in his eyes. "'You are too ill and too confused to be of use to me, old man,' it sounded so like Lord Stannis's voice. But it could not be, it could not. Pylos will counsel me henceforth. Already he works with the ravens, since you can no longer climb to the rookery. I will not have you kill yourself in my service. Maester Crescent blinked. Stannis, my lord, my sad, sullen boy, son I never had. You must not do this. Don't you know how I have cared for you, lived for you? Loved you despite all? Yes, loved you, better than Robert even, or Renly, for you were the one unloved, the one who needed me most. Yet all he said was, 
as you command, my lord. But, uh, but I am hungry. Might not I have a place at your table? At your side? I belong at your side. Sir Davis rose from the bench. I should be honoured if the master would sit here beside me, your grace. As you will. Lord Stannis turned away to say something to Melisande, who had seated herself at his right hand in the place of high honour. Lady Solis was on his left, flashing a smile as bright and brittle as her jewels. Too far, Crescent thought dully, looking at where Sir Davis was seated. Half of the Lord's bannermen were between the smuggler and the high table. I must be closer to her if I am to get the strangler into her cup. Yet how? Patchface was capering about as the maester made his slow way around the table to Davis Seaworth. Here we eat fish, the fool declared happily, waving a cart about like a scepter. Under the sea, the fish eat us. I know, I know, oh, ho, ho. Sir Davis moved aside to make room on the bench. We all should be in Motley tonight, he said gloomily as Crescent seated himself. For this is fool's business we're about. The red woman has seen victory in her flames, so Stannis means to press his claim, no matter what the numbers. Before she's done, we're all like to see what Patchface saw, I fear. The bottom of the sea. Crescent slid his hands up into his sleeves as if for warmth. His fingers found the hard lumps the crystals made in the wool. Lord Stannis. Stannis turned from the red woman, but it was Lady Solis who replied. King Stannis, you forget yourself, Maester. He is old. His mind wanders, the king told her gruffly. What is it, Crescent? Speak your mind. As you intend to sail, it is vital that you make common cause with Lord Stark and Lady Aram. I make common cause with no one, Stannis Baratheon said. No more than light makes common cause with darkness, Lady Solis took his hand. Stannis nodded. The Starks seek to steal half my kingdom, even as the Lannisters have stolen my throne and my own sweet brother, the swords and service and strongholds that are mine by rights. They're all usurpers, and they're all my enemies. I have lost him, Crescent thought, despairing. If only he could somehow approach Melisande unseen. He needed but an instant's access to her cup. You are the rightful heir to your brother, Robert, the true lord of the Seven Kingdoms, and king of the Andals, the Roynar, and the First Men, he said desperately. But even so, you cannot hope to triumph without allies. He has an ally, Lady Solis said. Relor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. Gods make uncertain allies at best, the old man insisted. And that one has no power here. You think not? The ruby at Melisande's throat caught the light as she turned her head, and for an instant it seemed to glow bright as the comet. If you'll speak such folly, mister, you ought to wear your crown again. 
Yes, Lady Selyse agreed. Patch his helm. It suits you well, old man. Put it on again, I command you. Under the sea, no one wears hats, Patchface said. I know, I know, oh-ho! Lord Stannis's eyes were shadowed beneath his heavy brow, his mouth tight as his jaw worked silently. He always ground his teeth when he was angry. Fool, he growled at last. My lady wife commands. Give Crescent your helm. No, the old maester thought. This is not you. Not your way. You are always just. Always hard, yet never cruel, never. You did not understand mockery no more than you understood laughter. Patchface danced closer, his cowbells ringing. Clang-a-dang, ding-ding, cling-clang, cling-clank. The maester sat silent while the fool set the antlered bucket on his brow. Cresson bowed his head beneath the weight. His bells clanged. Perhaps he ought to sing his counsel henceforth, Lady Selyse said. You go too far, woman, Lord Stannis said. He's an old man, and he served me well. And I will serve you to the last, my sweet lord, my poor, lonely son, Cresson thought. For suddenly he saw the way. Sir Davis' cup was before him, still half full of sour red. He found a hard flake of crystal in his sleeve, held it tight between thumb and forefinger as he reached for the cup. Smooth motions, deft. I must not fumble now, he prayed, and the gods were kind. In the blink of an eye, his fingers were empty. His hands had not been so steady for years, nor half so fluid. Davis saw, but no one else, he was certain. Cup in hand, he rose to his feet. Mayhaps I have been a fool, Lady Millicent. Will you share a cup of wine with me? A cup in honour of your god, your lord of light? A cup to toast his power? The red woman studied him. If you wish. He could feel them all watching him. Davis clutched at him as he left the bench, catching his sleeve with the fingers that Lord Stannis had shortened. What he had doing, he whispered. A thing that must be done, Maester Crescent answered, for the sake of the realm and the soul of my lord. He shook off Davis's hand, spilling a drop of wine on the rushes. She met him beneath the high table, with every man's eyes upon them. But Cresson saw only her. Red silk, red eyes, the ruby red at her throat, red lips curled in a faint smile as she put a hand atop his own around the cup. Her skin felt hot, feverish. It is not too late to spill the wine, maester. No, he whispered hoarsely. No. As you will. Melisande of Ashai took the cup from his hands and drank long and deep. There was only half a swallow of wine remaining when she offered it back to him. And now you. His hands were shaking, but he made himself bestrung. A maester of the Citadel must not be afraid. The wine was sour on his tongue. 
He let the empty cup drop from his fingers to shatter on the floor. He does have power here, my lord, the woman said, and fire cleanses. At her throat, the ruby shimmered redly. Cresson tried to reply, but his words caught in his throat. His cuff became a terrible, thin whistle as he strained to suck in air. Iron fingers tightened around his neck. As he sank to his knees, still he shook his head, denying her, denying her power, denying her magic, denying her god. And the cowbells peeled in his antlers, singing, Fool! 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 While the red woman looked down on him in pity, the candle flames dancing in her red, red eyes. Aria. At Winterfell they had called her Aria Horseface, and she thought nothing could be worse. But that was before the orphan boy, Lummy Greenhands, had named her Lumpy Head. Her head felt lumpy when she touched it. When Yoren had dragged her into that alley, she thought he meant to kill her. But the sour old man had only held her tight, sawing through her mats and tangles with his dagger. She remembered how the breeze sent the fistfuls of dirty brown hair skittering across the paving stones towards the sept where her father had died. I'm taking men and boys from the city, Yorin growled as a sharp steel scraped at her head. Now you all still, boy. By the time he had finished, her scalp was nothing but tufts and stubble. Afterwards, he told her, that from there to Winterfell she'd be Arry the orphan boy. Gate shouldn't be hard, but the road's another matter. You've got a long way to go in bad company. I got thirty this time, men and boys all bound for the wall, and don't be thinking they're like that bastard brother of yours. He shook her. Lord Eddard gave me pick of the dungeons, but I didn't find no little lordlings down there. This lot, half of them, would turn you over to the Queen, quick as spit for a pardon and maybe a few silvers. The other half will do the same. Only they'd rape you first. So you keep to yourself and make your water in the woods alone. That'll be the hardest part, the pissing. So don't drink no more than you need. Leaving King's Landing was easy, just like he'd said. The Lannister guardsman on the gate was stopping everyone, but Yorin called out one by name, and their wagons were waved through. No one spared Arya a glance. They were looking for a high-born girl, daughter of the King's Hand, not for a skinny boy with his hair chopped off. Arya never looked back. She wished the rush would rise and wash the whole city away, Flea Bottom and the Red Keep and the Great Sept and everything, and everyone, too especially Prince Joffrey and his mother. But she knew it wouldn't. And anyhow, Sansa was still in the city and would wash away too. When she remembered that, Arya decided to wish for Winterfell instead. Yorin was wrong about the pissing, though. That wasn't the hardest part at all. Lummy green hands and hot pie were the hardest part. Orphan boys. Yorin had plucked some from the streets 
with promises of food for their bellies and shoes for their feet. The rest he'd found in chains. The watch needs good men, he told them as they set out, but you lot will have to do. Yorin had taken grown men from the dungeons as well, thieves and poachers and rapers and the like. The worst were the three he'd found in the back cells, who must have scared even him, because he kept them fettered hand and foot in the back of a wagon and vowed they'd stay in irons all the way to the wall. One had no nose, only the hole in his face where it had been cut off, and the gross, fat, bald one with the pointed teeth and the weeping sores on his cheeks had eyes like nothing human. They took five wagons out of King's Landing, laden with supplies for the wall, hides and bolts of cloth, bars of pig iron, a cage of ravens, books and papers and ink, a baleful of sour leaf, jars of oil, and chests of medicine and spices. Teams of plough horses pulled the wagons, and Yorin had bought two courses and a half-dozen donkeys for the boys. Arya would have preferred a real horse, but the donkey was better than riding on a wagon. The men paid her no mind, but she was not so lucky with the boys. She was two years younger than the youngest orphan, not to mention smaller and skinnier, and Lummy and Hot Pie took her silence to mean she was scared or stupid or deaf. Look at that sword Lumpy Hedge got there, Lummy said one morning as they made their plodding way past orchards and wheat fields. He had been a dyer's apprentice before he was caught stealing, and his arms were mottled green to the elbow. When he laughed, he brayed like the donkeys they were riding. Where's her gutter rat like Lumpy Ed? Get him a sword. Arya chewed her lips sullenly. She could see the back of Yorin's faded black cloak up ahead of the wagons, but she was determined not to go crying to him for help. Maybe he's a little squire, Hot Pie put in. His mother had been a baker before she died, and he'd pushed her cart through the streets all day, shouting, Hot Pies! Hot Pies! Some lordy laws, little squire boy, that's it. He ain't no squire, look at him. I'll bet that's not even a real sword. I bet that's just some play sword made of tin. Arya hated them, making fun of Needle. It's Castle Forge steel, you stupid, she snapped, turning in the saddle to glare at them. And you'd better shut your mouth. The orphan boys hooted. Where'd you get your blade like that, lumpy face? Hot Pie wanted to know. Lumpy head, corrected Lommy. He probably stole it. I did not, she shouted. John Snow had given her needle. Maybe she had to let them call her lumpy head, but she wasn't going to let them call John a thief. If he stole it, we could take it off him, said Hot Pie. It's not his, anyhow. I could use me a sword like that. Lummy egged him on. Go on, take it off him, I dare you. Hot Pie kicked his donkey, riding closer. Eh, hey, lumpy fish, you give me that sword. His hair was the colour of straw, his fat face all sunburnt and peeling. You don't know how to use it. Yes, I do, Ario could have said. I killed a boy, a fat boy like you. I stabbed him in the belly and he died. And I'll kill you too, if you don't let me alone. Only she did not dare. Yorin didn't know about the stable boy but she was afraid of what he might do if he found out. 
Ari was pretty sure that some of the other men would kill us too. The three in the manacles for sure. But the Queen wasn't looking for them, so it wasn't the same. Look at him, brave lummy green hands. I bet he's going to cry now. You want to cry, lumpy head? She had cried in her sleep the night before, dreaming of her father. Come morning, she'd woken red-eyed and dry, and could not have shed another tear if her life had hung on it. He's going to wet his pants, Hot Pie suggested. Leave him be, said the boy with the shaggy black hair who rode behind them. Lummy had named him the Bull, on account of this horned helm he had, that he polished all the time but never wore. Lummy didn't dare muck the Bull. He was older and big for his age, with a broad chest and strong-looking arms. You'd better give Up Pie the sword, Harry, Lummy said. Up Pie wants it bad. He kicked a boy to death. He'll do the same to you, I'll bet. I knocked him down, and I kicked him in the balls, and I kept kicking him there until he was dead. Hot Pie boasted. I kicked him all to pieces. His balls were broken open and bloody, and his cock turned black. You better give me the sword. Aria slid her practice sword from her belt. You can have this one, she told Hot Pie, not wanting to fight. That's just some stick. He rode nearer and tried to reach over for Needle's hilt. Aria made the stick whistle as she laid the wood across the donkey's hindquarters. The animal hawed and bucked, dumping Hot Pie on the ground. She vaulted off her own donkey and poked him in the gut as he tried to get up, and he sat back down with a grunt. Then she whacked him across the face, and his nose made a crack like a branch breaking. Blood dribbled from his nostrils. When Hot Pie began to wail, Ario whirled towards Lummy Greenhands, who was sitting on his donkey open-mouthed. "'You want some sword, too?' she yelled, but he didn't. He raised dyed green hands in front of his face and squealed to her to get away. The bull shouted, "'Behind you!' and Ario spun. Hot Pie was on his knees, his fist closing around a big jagged rock. She let him throw it, ducking her head as it sailed past. Then she flew at him. He raised a hand, and she hit it, and then his cheek, and then his knee. He grabbed for her, and she danced aside, and bounced the wood off the back of his head. He fell down and got up and stumbled after her, his red face all smeared with dirt and blood. Arya slid into a water dancer's stance and waited. When he came close enough, she lunged right between his legs, so hard that if her wooden sword had had a point, it would have come out between his butt cheeks. By the time Yoren pulled her off him, Hot Pie was sprawled out on the ground with his breeches brown and smelly, crying as Arya whapped him over and over and over. Enough! The black brother roared, prying the stick sword from her fingers. You want to kill a fool? When Lommy and some others started to squeal, the old man turned on them too. Shut your mouths, or I'll be shutting them for you. Any more of this, I'll tie you up behind the wagons and drag you to the wall. He spat. And that goes twice for you, Harry. You come with me, boy, now. They were all looking at her, even the three chained and manacled in the back of the wagon. The fat one snapped his pointy teeth together and hissed. 
but Arya ignored him. The old man dragged her well off the road into a tangle of trees, cursing and muttering all the while. If I had a thimble of sense, I would have left you in King's Landing. You hear me, boy? He always snarled that word, putting a bite in it, so that she would be certain to hear. Unleash your britches and pull them down. Go on. There's no one here to see. Do it. Sullenly, Arya did as he said. Over there against the oak. Yes, like that. She wrapped her arms around the trunk and pressed her face to the rough wood. You scream now. You scream loud. I won't, Arya thought stubbornly. But when Yorin laid the wood across the back of her bare thighs, the shriek burst out of her anyway. Sink that hurt, he said. Try this one. The stick came whistling. Arya shrieked again, clutching the tree to keep from falling. One more. She held on tight, chewing her lip, flinching when she heard it coming. The stroke made her jump and howl. I won't cry, she thought. I won't do that. I'm a Stark of Winterfell. Our sigil is the direwolf. Direwolves don't cry. She could feel a thin trickle of blood running down her left leg. Her thighs and cheeks were ablaze with pain. Maybe I got your attention now, Yorin said. Next time you take that stick to one of your brothers, you'll get twice what you give. You hear me? Now, cover yourself. They're not my brothers, Arya thought. She bent to yank up her breeches, but she knew better than to say so. Her hands fumbled with her belt and laces. Yorin was looking at her. You hurt. Calm as still water, she told herself, the way Sirio Farrell had taught her. Son, he spat. That pie boy's hurting worse. It wasn't him as killed your father, girl. Nor that thieving lummy, neither. Hitting them won't bring him back. I know, Arya muttered sullenly. Here's something you didn't know. It wasn't supposed to happen like it did. I was set to leave, wagons bought and loaded, and a man comes with a boy for me, and a purse of coin, and a message. Never mind who it's from. Lord Eddard's to take the blackishes to me wake. He'll be going with you. Why do you think I was there? Only something went queer. Joffrey, Arya breathed. Someone should kill him. Someone will. But it won't be me, nor you neither. Yorin tossed back her stick sword. Got Sarleaf back at the wagons, he said as they made their way back to the road. You'll choose some. It'll help with a sting. It did help, some, though the taste of it was foul, and it made her spit look like blood. Even so, she walked for the rest of that day, and the day after, and the day after that, too raw to sit on a donkey. Hot pie was worse off. Yorin had to shift some barrels around so he could lie in the back of a wagon on some sacks of barley, and he whimpered every time the wheels hit a rock. Lummy Green Hands wasn't even hurt, yet he stayed as far away from Arya as he could get. Every time you look at him, he twitches, the bull told her as she walked beside his donkey. She did not answer. It seemed safer not to talk to anyone. That night, 
She lay upon her thin blanket on the hard ground, staring up at the great red comet. The comet was splendid and scary all at once. The red sword, the bull named it. He claimed it looked like a sword, the blade still red-hot from the forge. When Arya squinted the right way, she could see the sword too. Only it wasn't a new sword. It was ice. Her father's great sword. All Ripley Valerian steel, and the red was Lord Eddard's blood on the blade, after Sir Ilion, the king's justice, had cut off his head. Yorin had made her look away when it happened, yet it seemed to her that the comet looked like ice must have after. When at last she slept, she dreamed of home. The King's Road wound its way past Winterfell on its way to the wall, and Yorin had promised he'd leave her there with no one any wiser about who she'd been. She yearned to see her mother again, and Rob and Bran and Rickon, but it was Jon Snow she thought of most. She wished somehow they could come to the wall before Winterfell, so Jon might muss up her hair and call her little sister. She'd tell him, I missed you, and he'd say it too at the very same moment, the way they always used to say things together. She would have liked that. She would have liked that better than anything. Sansa The morning of King Joffrey's name day dawned bright and windy, with the long tail of the great comet visible through the high, scuttling clouds. Sansa was watching it from her tower window when Sir Aerys Oakheart arrived to escort her down to the tawny grounds. What do you think it means? she asked him. Glory to your betrothed, Sir Aerys answered at once. See how it flames across the sky today on his grace's name day, as if the gods themselves had raised a banner in his honor. The small folk have named it King Joffrey's Comet. Doubtless that was what they told Joffrey. Sansa was not so sure. I've heard servants calling it the Dragon's Tail. King Joffrey sits where Aegon the Dragon once sat, in the castle built by his son, Sir Aerys said. He is the Dragon's heir, and crimson is the colour of House Lannister, another sign. This comet is sent to herald Joffrey's ascent to his throne, I have no doubt. It means that he will triumph over his enemies. Is it true, she wondered? Would the guards be so cruel? Her mother was one of Joffrey's enemies now. Her brother Rob, another. Her father had died by the king's command. Must Rob and her lady mother die next? The comet was red. But Joffrey was Baratheon as much as Lannister, and their sigil was a black stag on a golden field. Shouldn't the guards have sent Joff a golden comet? Sansa closed the shutters and turned sharply away from the window. You look very lovely today, my lady, Sir Aerys said. Thank you, sir. Knowing that Joffrey would require her to attend the tourney in his honor, Sansa had taken special care with her face and clothes. She wore a gown of pale purple silk and a moonstone hairnet that had been a gift from Joffrey. The gown had long sleeves to hide the bruises on her arms. Those were Joffrey's gifts as well. 
When they told him that Rob had been proclaimed king in the north, his rage had been a fearsome thing, and he had sent Sir Boris to beat her. Shall we go? Sir Ares offered his arm, and she let him lead her from her chamber. If she must have one of the king's guard dogging her steps, Sansa preferred that it be him. Sir Boris was short-tempered, Sir Merrin cold, and Sir Mandon's strange dead eyes made her uneasy, while Sir Preston treated her like a lackwit child. Ares Oakheart was courteous and would talk to her cordially. Once he even objected when Joffrey commanded him to hit her. He did hit her in the end, but not hard, as Sir Merrin or Sir Boris might have, and at least he had argued. The others obeyed without question, except for the Hound. But Joff never asked the Hound to punish her. He used the other five for that. Sir Ares had light brown hair and a face that was not unpleasant to look upon. Today he made quite the dashing figure, with his white silk cloak fastened at the shoulder by a golden leaf, and a spreading oak tree worked upon the breast of his tunic in shining gold thread. "'Who do you think will win the day's honours? Sansa asked, as they descended the steps arm in arm. "'I will,' Sir Ares answered, smiling. "'Yet I fear the triumph will have no savour. This will be a small field and poor.' No more than two score will enter the lists, including squires and free riders. There is small honour in unhorsing green boys. The last tourney had been different, Sansa reflected. King Robert had staged it in her father's honour. High lords and fable champions had come from all over the realm to compete, and the whole city had turned out to watch. She remembered the splendour of it, the field of pavilions along the river, with a night shield hung before each door, the long rows of silken pennants waving in the wind, the gleam of sunlight on bright steel and gilded spurs. The days had rung to the sound of trumpets and pounding hooves, and the night had been full of feasts and song. Those had been the most magical days of her life, but they seemed a memory from another age now. Robert Baratheon was dead, and her father as well, beheaded for a traitor on the steps of the great sept of Baelor. Now there were three kings in the land, and war raged beyond the trident while the city filled with desperate men. Small wonder that they had to hold Joff's tournament behind the thick stone walls of the Red Keep. Will the queen attend, do you think? Sansa always felt safer when Cersei was there to restrain her son. I fear not, my lady. The council is meeting some urgent business. Sir Ares dropped his voice. Lord Tywin has gone to ground at Harrenhal instead of bringing his army to the city, as the Queen commanded. Her grace is furious. He fell silent as a column of Lannister guardsmen marched past, in crimson cloaks and lion-crested helms. Sir Ares was fond of gossip, but only when he was certain that no one was listening. The carpenters had erected a gallery and lists in the outer bailey. It was a poor thing indeed, and the meagre throng that had gathered to watch filled but half the seats. Most of the spectators were guardsmen in the gold cloaks of the city watch, or the crimson of House Lannister, of lords and ladies there were but a paltry few, the handful that remained at court. Grey-faced Lord Giles Rusby was coughing into a square of pink silk, 
Lady Tander was bracketed by her daughters, placid dull lollies and acid-tongued Felissa. Evanskin Jalabazo was an exile who had no other refuge. Lady Emma Sande, a babe, seated on her wet nurse's lap. The talk was she would soon be wed to one of the Queen's cousins, so the Lannisters might claim her lands. The King was shaded beneath a crimson canopy, one leg thrown negligently over the carved wooden arm of his chair. Princess Marcella and Prince Tommen sat behind him. In the back of the royal box, Sander Clegane stood at guard, his hands resting on his sword belt. The white cloak of the King's guard was draped over his broad shoulders and fastened with a jewel brooch. The snowy cloth, looking somehow unnatural against his brown, rough-spun tunic and studded leather jerkin. Lady Sansa, the hound announced curtly when he saw her. His voice was as rough as the sound of a saw on wood. The burnt scars in his face and throat made one side of his mouth twitch when he spoke. Princess Marcella nodded a shy greeting at the sound of Sansa's name, but plump little Prince Tommen jumped up eagerly. Sansa, did you hear? I'm to ride in a tawny today. Mother said I could. Tommen was all of eight. He reminded her of her own little brother, Bran. They were of an age. Bran was back at Winterfell, a cripple, yet safe. Sansa would have given anything to be with him. I fear for the life of your foeman, she told Tommen solemnly. His foeman will be stuffed with straw, Joff said as he rose. The king was clad in a gilded breastplate with a roaring lion engraved upon its chest, as if he expected the war to engulf them at any moment. He was thirteen today, and tall for his age, with the green eyes and golden hair of the Lannisters. Your grace, she said, dipping in a curtsy. Sir Aerys bowed. Uh, pray pardon me, Your Grace. I must equip myself for the lists. Joffrey waved a curt dismissal while he studied Sansa from head to heels. I'm pleased you wore my stones. So the king had decided to play the gallant today. Sansa was relieved. I thank you for them and for your tender words. I pray you a lucky name day, Your Grace. Sit, Joff commanded gesturing her to the empty seat beside his own. Have you heard? The beggar king is dead. Who? For a moment Sansa was afraid he meant Rob. Viserys, the last son of Mad King Ares, has been going about the free cities since before I was born, calling himself a king. Well, Mother says the Dothraki finally crowned him with molten gold. <laughs> he laughed. That's funny, don't you think? The dragon was their sigil. It's almost as good as if some wolf killed your traitor brother. <laughs> Maybe I'll feed him to the wolves after I've caught him. Did I tell you I intend to challenge him to single combat? I should like to see that, Your Grace. More than you know. Sansa kept her tone cool and polite. Yet even so, Joffrey's eyes narrowed as he tried to decide whether she was mocking him. Will you enter the list today? she asked quickly. The king frowned. My lady mother said it was not fitting, since the tawny is in my honour. Otherwise I would have been champion. Isn't that so, dog? The hound's mouth twitched. Against this lot? Why not? 
He had been the champion in her father's tourney, Sansa remembered. Will you just today, my lord? she asked him. Clegane's voice was thick with contempt. Wouldn't be worth the bother of army, Miss Health. This is a tourney of gnats. The king laughed. My dog has a fierce bark. Perhaps I should command him to fight the day's champion. To the death. Joffrey was fond of making men fight to the death. You'd be one night the poorer. The hound had never taken a knight's vows. His brother was a knight, and he hated his brother. A blare of trumpets sounded. The king settled back in his seat and took Sansa's hand. Once that would have sent her heart to pounding, but that was before he had answered her plea for mercy by presenting her with her father's head. His touch filled her with revulsion now, but she knew better than to show it. She made herself sit very still. Sir Merin Trant of the King's Guard, a herald called. Sir Merin entered from the west side of the yard, clad in gleaming white plate, chased with gold, and mounted on a milk-white charger with a flowing grey mane. His cloak streamed behind him like a field of snow. He carried a twelve-foot lance. Sir Hubber of House Red Wine of the Arbor, the herald sang. Sir Hubber trotted in from the east, riding a black stallion caparisoned in burgundy and blue. His lance was striped in the same colors, and his shield bore the grape-cluster sigil of his house. The red wine twins were the queen's unwilling guests, even as Sansa was. She wondered whose notion it had been for them to ride in Joffrey's tawny. Not their own, she thought. At a signal from the master of revels, the combatants couched their lances and put their spurs to their mounts. There were shouts from the watching guardsmen and the lords and ladies in the gallery. The knights came together in the center of the yard with a great shock of wood and steel. The white lance and the striped one exploded in splinters within a second of each other. Hobber Redwine reeled at the impact, yet somehow managed to keep his seat. Wheeling their horses about at the far end of the lists, the knights tossed down their broken lances and accepted replacements from the squires. Sir Horace Redwine, Sir Hobber's twin, shouted encouragement to his brother. But on their second pass, Sir Merrin swung the point of his lance to strike Sir Hubber in the chest, driving him from the saddle to crash resoundingly to the earth. Sir Horace cursed and ran out to help his battered brother from the field. Poorly ridden, declared King Joffrey. Sir Balon Swan of Stone Elm in a red watch, came the herald's cry. Wide white wings ornamented Sir Balon's great helm, and black and white swans fought on his shield. Morris of House Slint, heir to Lord Janus of Harrenhal. Look at that up-jumped oaf, Joff hooted, loud enough for half the yard to hear. Morris, a mere squire, and a new-made squire at that, was having difficulty managing lance and shield. The lance was a knight's weapon, Sansa knew, the Slint's low-born. Lord Janus had been no more than commander of the city watch before Joffrey had raised him to Harrenhal and the council. I hope he falls and shames himself, she thought bitterly. I hope Sir Balon kills him. When Joffrey proclaimed her father's death, it had been Janus Slint 
who seized Lord Eddard's severed head by the hair and raised it on high for king and crowd to behold, while Sansa wept and screamed. Morris wore a checkered black and gold cloak over black armor inlaid with gold scrollwork. On his shield was a bloody spear his father had chosen as the sigil of their new-made house. But he did not seem to know what to do with the shield as he urged his horse forward, and Sir Balin's point struck the blazoned square. Morris dropped his lance, fought for balance, and lost. One foot caught in a stirrup as he fell, and the runaway charger dragged the youth to the end of the lists, head bouncing against the ground. Joff hooted derision. Sansa was appalled, wondering if the guards had heard her vengeful prayer. But when they disentangled Morris Slint from his horse, they found him bloodied but alive. Tommen, we picked the wrong foe for you, the king told his brother. The straw knight just better than that one. Next came Sir Horace Redwine's turn. He fared better than his twin. Vanquishing an elderly knight whose mount was bedecked with silver griffins against the striped blue and white field. Splendid as he looked, the old man made a poor contest of it. Joffrey curled his lip. This is a feeble show. I warned you, said the hound. Natch. The king was growing bored. It made Sansa anxious. She lowered her eyes and resolved to keep quiet no matter what. When Joffrey Baratheon's mood darkened, any chance word might set off one of his rages. Lothar Brun, free rider in the service of Lord Baelish, cried the herald. Sir Duntas the Red of House Hollard. The free rider, a small man in dented plate without device, duly appeared at the west end of the yard. But of his opponent there was no sign. Finally, a chestnut stallion trotted into view in a swirl of crimson and scarlet silks. But Sir Dantas was not on it. The knight appeared a moment later, cursing and staggering, clad in breastplate and plumed helm and nothing else. His legs were pale and skinny, and his manhood flopped about obscenely as he chased after his horse. The watchers roared and shouted insults. Catching his horse by the bridle, Sir Dantas tried to mount, but the animal would not stand still, and the knight was so drunk that his bare foot kept missing the stirrup. By then, the crowd was howling with laughter, all but the king. Joffrey had a look in his eyes that Sansa remembered well, the same look he'd had of the great sept of Baelor the day he pronounced death on Lord Eddard Stark. Finally, Sir Dantas read, gave it up for a bad job, sat down in the dirt, and removed his plumed helm. I lose, he shouted. Fish me some wine. The king stood. A cask from the cellars. I'll see him drowned in it. Sansa heard herself gasp. No, you can't. Joffrey turned his head. What did you say? Sansa could not believe she had spoken. Was she mad? To tell him no? in front of half the court. She hadn't meant to say anything, only Sir Dantas was drunken and silly and useless, but he meant no harm. Did you say I can't? Did you? Please, Sansa said. I only meant it would be ill luck, Your Grace, to, to, 
to kill a man on your name day. You're lying, Joffrey said. I ought to drown you with him, if you care for him so much. I don't care for him, Your Grace. The words tumbled out desperately. Drown him or have his head off only kill him on the morrow, if you like, but please, not today, not on your name day. I, I couldn't bear for you to have ill luck. Terrible luck, even for kings. The singers all say so. Joffrey scowled. He knew she was lying. She could see it. He would make her bleed for this. The girl speaks truly, the hound rasped. What a man sows on his name day, he reaps throughout the year. His voice was flat, as if he did not care a whit whether the king believed him or no. Could it be true? Sansa had not known. It was just something she'd said, desperate to avoid punishment. Unhappy, Joffrey shifted in his seat and flicked his fingers at Sir Dantas. Take him away. I'll have him killed on the morrow. The fool. He is, Sansa said, a fool. You're so clever to see it. He's better fitted to be a fool than a knight, isn't he? You ought to dress him in motley and make him clown for you. He doesn't deserve the mercy of a quick death. The king studied her for a moment. Perhaps you're not so stupid as Mother says. He raised his voice. Did you hear, my lady, Dantas? From this day on, you're my new fool. You can sleep with Moonboy and dress in motley. Sir Dantas sobered by his near brush with death, crawled to his knees. Thank you, your grace, and you, my lady, thank you. As a brace of Lannister guardsmen led him off, the master of rebels approached the box. Your grace, he said, shall I summon a new challenger for Brune, or proceed with the next tilt? Neither. These are gnats, not knights. I'd have them all put to death, only it's my name day. The tawny is done. Get them all out of my sight. The Master of Rebels bowed, but Prince Tommen was not so obedient. I'm supposed to ride against a straw man. Not today. But I want to ride. I don't care what you want. Mother said I could ride. She said, Princess Morella agreed. Mother said, mocked the King. Don't be childish. We're children, Marcella declared haughtily. We're supposed to be childish. The hound laughed. <laughs> she has you there. Joffrey was beaten. Very well. Even my brother couldn't tilt any worse than these others. Master, bring out the Quinton. Tommen wants to be a gnat. Tommen gave a shout of joy and ran off to be readied, his chubby little legs pumping hard. Luck, Sansa called to him. They set up the Quinton at the far end of the lists, while the prince's pony was being saddled. Tommen's opponent was a child-sized leather warrior stuffed with straw and mounted on a pivot with a shield in one hand and a padded mace in the other. Someone had fastened a pair of antlers to the knight's head. Joffrey's father, King Robert, had worn antlers on his helm, Sansa remembered. But so did his uncle, Lord Renly, Robert's brother, who had turned traitor and crowned himself king. A pair of squires buckled the prince into his ornate silver and crimson armor. A tall plume of red feathers sprouted from the crest of his helm, and the line of Lannister and crown stagger Baratheon frolicked together on his shield. The squires helped him mount, 
and Sir Aaron Santigar, the Red Keep's master-at-arms, stepped forward and handed Tommen a blunted silver longsword with a leaf-shaped blade, crafted to fit an eight-year-old hand. Tommen raised the blade high. Castle rock, he shouted in a high boyish voice as he put his heels into his pony and started across the hard-packed dirt at the Quinton. Lady Tender and Lord Giles started a ragged cheer, and Sansa added her voice to theirs. The king brooded in silence. Tommen got his pony up to a brisk trot, waved his sword vigorously, and spun the knight's shield a solid blow as it went by. The Quinton spun, the padded mace flying around to give the prince a mighty whack in the back of his head. Tommen spilled from the saddle, his new armor rattling like a bag of old pots as he hit the ground. His sword went flying, his pony cantered away across the bailey, and a great gale of derision went up. King Joffrey laughed longest and loudest of all. Oh, Princess Marcella cried. She scrambled out of the box and ran to her little brother. Sansa found herself possessed of a queer, giddy courage. You ought to go with her, she told the king. Your brother might be hurt. Joffrey shrugged. What if he is? You should help him up and tell him how well he rode. Sansa could not seem to stop herself. He got knocked off his horse and fell in the dirt, the king pointed out. That's not riding well. Look, the hound interrupted. The boy's courage. He's going to try again. They were helping Prince Tommen mount his pony. If only Tommen were the elder instead of Joffrey, Sansa thought. I wouldn't mind marrying Tommen. The sounds from the gatehouse took them by surprise. Chains rattled as the portcullis was drawn upward, and the great gates opened to the creak of iron hinges. Who told them to open the gate? Joff demanded. With the troubles in the city, the gates of the Red Keep had been closed for days. A column of riders emerged from beneath the portcullis, with a clink of steel and a clatter of hooves. Clegane stepped close to the king, one hand on the hilt of his longsword. The visitors were dinted and haggard and dusty, yet the standard they carried was the Lion of Lannister, golden on its crimson field. A few wore the red cloaks and mail of Lannister men-at-arms, but more were free riders and sellswords, armoured in oddments and bristling with sharp steel. And there were others, monstrous savages, out of one of old Nan's tales, the scary ones Bran used to love. They were clad in shabby skins and boiled leather, with long hair and fierce beards. Some wore blood-stained bandages over their brows or wrapped round their hands, and others were missing eyes, ears, and fingers. In their midst, riding on a tall, red horse, in a strange, high saddle that cradled him back and front, was the Queen's dwarf brother, Tyrion Lannister, the one they called the Imp. He'd let his beard grow to cover his pushed-in face until it was a bristly tangle of yellow and black hair, coarse as wire. Down his back flowed a shadow-skin cloak, black fur striped with white. He held the reins in his left hand and carried his right arm in a white silk sling, but otherwise looked as grotesque as Sansa remembered from when he had visited Winterfell. With his bulging brow and mismatched eyes, he was still the ugliest man she had ever chanced to look upon. 
Yet Tommen put his spurs into his pony and galloped headlong across the yard, shouting with glee. One of the savages, a huge, shambling man, so hairy that his face was all but lost beneath his whiskers, scooped the boy out of his saddle, armour and all, and deposited him on the ground beside his uncle. Tommen's breathless laughter echoed off the walls as Tyrion clapped him on the backplate, and Sansa was startled to see that the two were of a height. Marcella came running after her brother, and the dwarf picked her up by the waist and spun her in a circle, squealing. When he lowered her back to the ground, the little man kissed her lightly on the brow and came waddling across the yard toward Joffrey. Two of his men followed close behind him, a black-haired, black-eyed sellsword who moved like a stalking cat and a gaunt youth with an empty socket where one eye should have been. Tommen and Marcella trailed after them. The dwarf went to one knee before the king. Your grace. You, Joffrey said. Me, the imp agreed, although a more courteous greeting might be in order for an uncle and an elder. They said you were dead, the hound said. The little man gave the big one a look. One of his eyes was green, one was black, and both were cool. I was speaking to the king, not to his cur. I'm glad you're not dead, said Princess Marcella. We share that view, sweet child, Tyrion turned to Sansa. My lady, I am sorry for your losses. Truly, the gods are cruel. Sansa could not think of a word to say to him. How could he be sorry for her losses? Was he mocking her? It wasn't the guards who'd been cruel. It was Joffrey. I am sorry for your loss as well, Joffrey, the dwarf said. What loss? Your royal father. A large, fierce man with a black beard. You'll recall him if you try. He was king before you. Oh, him. Yes, it was very sad. A boar killed him. Is that what they say, Your Grace? Joffrey frowned. Sansa felt she ought to say something. What was it that Septim Ordain used to tell her? Lady's armour is courtesy. That was it. She donned her armour and said, I'm sorry my lady mother took you captive, my lord. A great many people are sorry for that, Tyrion replied, and before I am done, some may be a deal sorrier. Yet I thank you for the sentiment. Joffrey, where might I find your mother? She's with my council, the king answered. Your brother, Jamie, keeps losing battles. He gave Sansa an angry look, as if it were her fault. He's been taken by the Starks, and we've lost Riveron, and now her stupid brother is calling himself a king. The dwarf smiled crookedly. All sorts of people are calling themselves kings these days. Joff did not know what to make of that, though he looked suspicious and out of sorts. Yes, well, I'm pleased you're not dead, Uncle. Did you bring me a gift for my name day? I did. My wits. I'd sooner have Rub Stark's head, Joff said, with a sly glance at Sansa. Tommen, Marcella, come. Sander Clegane lingered behind a moment. I'd guard that tongue of yours, little man, he warned before he strode off after his liege. Sansa was left with the dwarf and his monsters.
She tried to think of what else she might say. You hurt your arm, she managed at last. One of your Northmen hit me with a morning star during the battle on the Green Fork. I escaped him by falling off my horse. His grin turned into something softer as he studied her face. Is it grief for your Lord Father that makes you so sad? My father was a traitor, Sansa said at once, and my brother and Lady Mother are traitors as well. That reflex she had learned quickly. I am loyal to my beloved Joffrey. No doubt, as loyal as a deer surrounded by wolves. Lions, she whispered without thinking. She glanced about nervously, but there was no one close enough to hear. Lannister reached out and took her hand and gave it a squeeze. I'm only a little lion, child, and I vow I shall not savage you. Bowing, he said, But now you must excuse me. I have urgent business with Queen and Council. Sansa watched him walk off, his body swaying heavily from side to side with every step, like something from a grotesquerie. He speaks more gently than Joffrey, she thought. But the Queen spoke to me gently, too. He's still a Lannister, her brother, and Joff's uncle, and no friend. Once she had loved Prince Joffrey with all her heart, and admired and trusted his mother, the Queen. They had repaid that love and trust with her father's head. Sansa would never make that mistake again. Tyrion. In the chilly white raiment of the King's Guard, Sir Mandon Moore looked like a corpse in a shroud. Her Grace left orders that the Council in session is not to be disturbed. I would only bear small disturbance, sir. Tyrion slid the parchment from his sleeve. I bear a letter for my father, Lord Tywin Lannister, the hand of the king. There is his seal. Her Grace does not wish to be disturbed. Sir Mandon repeated slowly, as if Tyrion were a dullard who had not heard him the first time. Jaime had once told him that Moore was the most dangerous of the king's guard, excepting himself, always, because his face gave no hint as to what he might do next. Tyrion would have welcomed a hint. Bronn and Timid could likely kill the knight if it came to swords, but it would scarcely bode well if he began by slaying one of Joffrey's protectors. Yet if he let the man turn him away, where was his authority? He made himself smile. Sir Mandon, you have not met my companions. This is Timet, son of Timet, a red hand of the burned men, and this is Brun. Perchance you recall Savardus Egan, who was captain of Lord Aaron's household guard? I know the man. Sir Mandon's eyes were pale grey, oddly flat and lifeless. New, Brun corrected with a thin smile. Sir Mandon did not deign to show that he'd heard that. Be that as it may, Tyrion said lightly, I truly must see my sister and present my letter, sir. If you would be so kind as to open the door for us. The White Knight did not respond. Tyrion was almost at the point of trying to force his way past 
when Sir Mandon abruptly stood aside. You may enter. They may not. A small victory, he thought, but sweet. He had passed his first test. Tyrion Lannister shouldered through the door, feeling almost tall. Five members of the King's small council broke off their discussion suddenly. You, his sister Cersei said, in a tone that was equal parts of disbelief and distaste. I can see where Joffrey learned his courtesies. Tyrion paused to admire the pair of Valyrian sphinxes that guarded the door, affecting an air of casual confidence. Cersei could smell weakness the way a dog smells fear. What are you doing here? His sister's lovely green eyes studied him without the least hint of affection. Delivering a letter from a lord father. He sauntered to the table and placed the tightly rolled parchment between them. The eunuch, Varys, took the letter and turned it in his delicate powdered hands. How kind of Lord Tywin, and his sealing wax is such a lovely shade of gold. Varys gave the seal a close inspection. It gives every appearance of being genuine. Well, of course it's genuine. Cersei snatched it out of his hands. She broke the wax and unrolled the parchment. Tyrion watched her read. His sister had taken the king's seat for herself. He gathered Joffrey did not often trouble to attend council meetings. No more than Robert had. So Tyrion climbed up into the hand's chair. It seemed only appropriate. This is absurd, the queen said at last. My lord father has sent my brother to sit in his place in this council. He bids us accept Tyrion as the hand of the king, until such time as he himself can join us. Grand Maester Pycelle stroked his flowing white beard and nodded ponderously. It would seem that a welcome is in order. Indeed. Jolly, balding Janus Slint looked rather like a frog, a smug frog, who had gotten rather above himself. We have sore need of you, my lord. Rebellion everywhere. This grim omen in the sky. Rioting in the city streets. And whose fault is that, Lord Janus? Cersei lashed out. Your gold cloaks are charged with keeping order. As to you, Tyrion, you could better serve us on the field of battle. He laughed. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm done with fields of battle, thank you. I, I set a chair better than a horse, and I, I'd rather hold a wine goblet than a battle axe. All that about the thunder of the drums, sunlight flashing on armor, magnificent destriers snorting and prancing. Well, the drums gave me headaches. The sunlight flashing on my armor cooked me up like a harvest-day goose. And those magnificent destriers shit everywhere. Not that I'm complaining, compared to the hospitality I enjoyed in the Vale of Aaron. Drums, horse shit, and fly bites are my favorite things. Littlefinger laughed. <laughs> well said, Lannister. Man off my own heart. Tyrion smiled at him, remembering a certain dagger with a dragonbone hilt and a Valyrian steel blade. We must have a talk about that. And soon, he wondered if Lord Petire would find that subject amusing as well. Please, he told them, uh, do let me be of service in whatever small way I can. Cersei read the letter again. 
How many men have you brought with you? A few hundred, my own men chiefly. Father was loath to part with any of his. He is fighting a war, after all. What use will your few hundred men be if Renly marches on the city or Stannis sails from Dragonstone? I ask for an army, and my father sends me a dwarf. The king names the hand, with the consent of council. Joffrey named our lord father. And our lord father named me. He cannot do that, not without Joff's consent. Lord Tywin is at Harrenhal with his host, if you care to take it up with him, Tyrion said politely. My lords, perchance you would permit me a private word with my sister. Varys slithered to his feet, smiling in that unctuous way he had. How you must have yearned for the sound of your sweet sister's voice. My lords, please, let us give them a few moments together. The woes of our troubled realm shall keep. Jaina Slint rose hesitantly, and Grand Maester Purcell ponderously, yet they rose. Littlefinger was the last. Shall I tell the steward to prepare chambers in Magor's Hellfast? My thanks, Lord Vatar, but I will be taking Lord Stark's former quarters in the Tower of the Hand. Littlefinger laughed. <laughs> You're a braver man than me, Lannister. <laughs> you, you do know the fate of our last two hands. Two? If you mean to frighten me, why not say four? Four? Littlefinger raised an eyebrow. Did the hands before Lord Aaron meet some dire end in the Tower? I'm afraid I was too young to pay them much mind. Aerys Targaryen's last hand was killed during the sack of King's Landing, though I doubt he'd had time to settle into the tower. He was only hanged for a fortnight. The one before him was burned to death, and before them came two others who died landless and penniless in exile and counted themselves lucky. I believe my lord father was the last hand to depart King's Landing with his name, properties, and parts all intact. Fascinating, said Littlefinger. And all the more reason I'd sooner bed down in the dungeon. Perhaps you'll get that wish, Tyrion thought. But he said, Courage and folly are cousins, or so I've heard. Whatever curse may linger over the Tower of the Hand, I pray I'm small enough to escape its notice. Jaina Slint laughed. Littlefinger smiled, and Grand Maester Pycelle followed them both out, bowing gravely. I hope Father did not send you all this way to plague us with history lessons, his sister said when they were alone. How I've yearned for the sound of your sweet voice, Tyrion sighed to her. How I have yearned to have that eunuch's tongue... "'Pulled out with hot pincers,' Cersei replied. "'Has father lost his senses, or did you forge this letter?' "'She read it once more, with mounting annoyance. "'Why would he inflict you on me? "'I wanted him to come himself.' "'She crushed Lord Tywin's letter in her fingers. "'I am Joffrey's regent, and I sent him a royal command.' "'And he ignored you,' Tyrion pointed out. "'He has quite a large army. He can do that.' Nor is he the first, is he? Cersei's mouth tightened. He could see her colour rising. If I name this letter a forgery and tell them to throw you in a dungeon, no one will ignore that 
I promise you. He was walking on rotten ice now, Tyrion knew. One false step, and he would plunge through. No one, he agreed amiably, least of all our father, the one with the army. But why should you want to throw me in a dungeon, sweet sister, when I've come all this way to help you? I do not require your help. It was our father's presence that I commanded. Yes, he said quietly, but it's Jamie you want. His sister fancied herself subtle, but he had grown up with her. He could read her face like one of his favorite books, and what he read now was rage and fear and despair. Jamie is my brother, no less than yours, Tyrion interrupted. Give me your support, and I promise you, we will have Jamie freed and return to us unarmed. How, Cersei demanded, the Stark boy and his mother are not like to forget that we beheaded Lord Eddard? True, Tyrion agreed, yet you still hold his daughters, don't you? I saw the older girl out in the yard with Joffrey. Sansa, the Queen said. I've given it out that I have the younger brat as well, but it's a lie. I sent Meryn Trant to take her in hand when Robert died, but a wretched dancing master interfered and the girl fled. No one has seen her since. Likely she's dead. A great many people died that day. Tyrion had hoped for both Stark girls, but he supposed one would have to do. Uh, tell me about our friends on the council. His sister glanced at the door. What of them? Father seems to have taken a dislike to them. When I left him, he was wondering how their heads might look on the wall beside Lord Stark's. He leaned forward across the table. Are you certain of their loyalty? Hmm? Do you trust them? I trust no one, Cersei snapped. I need them. Does father believe they are playing us false? Suspects, rather. Why? What does he know? Tyrion shrugged. He knows that your son's short reign has been a long parade of follies and disasters. That suggests that someone is giving Joffrey some very bad counsel. Cersei gave him a searching look. Joff has had no lack of good counsel. He's always been strong-willed. Now that he's king, he believes he should do as he pleases, not as he's bid. The crowns do queer things to heads beneath them, Tyrion agreed. This business with Eddard Stark, Joffrey's work? The Queen grimaced. He was instructed to pardon Stark, to allow him to take the black. The man would have been out of our way forever, and we might have made peace with that son of his. But Joff took it upon himself to give the mob a better show. What was I to do? He called for Lord Eddard's head in front of half the city, and Janus Slint and Sir Ilian went ahead blithely and shortened the man without a word from me. A hand tightened into a fist. The High Septon claims we profane Baylor's sept with blood, after lying to him about our intent. It would seem he has a point, said Tyrion. So this Lord Slint, he was part of it, was he? Tell me, whose fine notion was it to grant him Harrenhal and name him to the council? Littlefinger made the arrangements. We needed Slint's gold cloaks. Eddard Stark was plotting with Renly, and he'd written to Lord Stannis, offering him the throne. We might have lost all. 
Even so, it was a close thing. If Sansa hadn't come to me and told me all her father's plans, Tyrion was surprised. Truly, oh, his own daughter, eh? Sansa had always seemed such a sweet child, tender and courteous. The girl was wet with love. She would have done anything for Joffrey until he cut her father's head off and called it mercy. That put an end to that. His grace has a unique way of winning the hearts of his subjects, Tyrion said with a crooked smile. Was it Joffrey's wish to dismiss Sir Barristan Selmy from his king's guard too? Cersei sighed. Joffrey wanted someone to blame for Robert's death. Varys suggested Sir Barristan. Why not? He gave Jaime a command for the king's guard and a seat on the small council, and allowed Joff to throw a bone to his dog. He's very fond of Sandor Clegane. We were prepared to offer Selmy some land and a tower house, more than the useless old fool deserved. I hear that useless old fool slew two of Slint's gold cloaks when they tried to seize him at the mud gate. His sister looked very unhappy. Janus should have sent more men. He is not as competent as might be wished. Sir Barristan was the Lord Commander of Robert Baratheon's King's Guard, Tyrion reminded her pointedly. He and Jaime are the only survivors of Aerys Targaryen's seven. The small folk talk of him in the same way they talk of Serwyn of the Mirror Shield and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. What do you imagine they'll think when they see Barristan the Bold riding beside Rob Stark or Stannis Baratheon? Cersei glanced away. I had not considered that. Father did, said Tyrion. That is why he sent me, to put an end to these follies and bring your son to Eel. Joff will be no more tractable for you than for me. Oh, he might. Why should he? He knows you would never hurt him. Cersei's eyes narrowed. If you believe I'd ever allow you to harm my son, you're sick with fever. Tyrion sighed. She'd miss the point, as she did so often. Joffrey is as safe with me as he is with you, he assured her. But so long as the boy feels threatened, he'll be more inclined to listen. He took her hand. I am your brother, you know. You need me, whether you care to admit it or no. Your son needs me, if he's to have a hope of retaining that ugly iron chair. His sister seemed shocked that he would touch her. You have always been cunning. In my own small way, he grinned. It may be worth the trying, but make no mistake, Tyrion. If I accept you, you shall be the king's hand in name, but my hand in truth. You will share all your plans and intentions with me before you act, and you will do nothing without my consent. Do you understand? Oh, yes. Do you agree? Certainly, he lied. I am your sister. For as long as I need to be. So now that we are of one purpose, we ought to have no more secrets between us. You say Joffrey had Lord Eddard killed. Varys dismissed Sir Barristan, and Littlefinger gifted us with Lord Slint. Who murdered John Aaron? Cersei yanked her hand back. How should I know? 
Uh, the grieving widow in the area seems to think it was me. Where did she come by that notion, I wonder? Well, I'm sure I don't know. That fool Eddard Stark accused me of the same thing. He hinted that Lord Aaron suspected or, well, believed that you were fucking our sweet Jamie. She slapped him. Did you think I was as blind as father? Tyrion rubbed his cheek. Who you lie with is no matter with me, although it doesn't seem quite just that you should open your legs for one brother and not the other. She slapped him. Oh, be gentle, Cersei. I'm only jesting with you. If truth be told, I'd soon have a nice whore. I never understood what Jamie saw in you. Uh, apart from his own reflection, she slapped him. His cheeks were red and burning, yet he smiled. If you keep doing that, I may get angry. That stayed her hand. Why should I care if you do? Oh, I have some new friends, Tyrion confessed. You won't like them at all. How did you kill Robert? He did that himself. All we did was help. When Lancel saw that Robert was going after Boar, he gave him strong wine. His favorite sour red, but fortified, three times as potent as he was used to. The great stinking fool loved it. He could have stopped swilling it down any time he cared to, but no, he drained one skin and told Lancel to fetch another. The boar did the rest. You should have been at the feast, Tyrion. There has never been a boar so delicious. They cooked it with mushrooms and apples, and it tasted like triumph. Truly, sister, you were born to be a widow. Tyrion had rather liked Robert Baratheon, great, blustering oaf that he was, doubtless in part because his sister loathed him so. Now, if you've done slapping me, I will be off. He twisted his legs around and clambered down awkwardly from the chair. Cersei frowned. I haven't given you leave to depart. I want to know how you intend to free Jamie. I'll tell you when I know. Schemes are like fruit. They require a certain ripening. Right now, I have a mind to ride through the streets and take the measure of this city. Tyrion rested his hand on the head of the Sphinx beside the door. One parting request. Kindly make certain no harm comes to Sansa Stark. It would not do to lose both the daughters. Outside the council chamber, Tyrion nodded to Sir Mandon and made his way down the long vaulted hall. Bronn fell in beside him. Of Timot's son of Timot, there was no sign. Where is our red hand? Tyrion asked. He felt an urge to explore. His kind was not made for waiting about in halls. I hope he doesn't kill anyone important. The clansmen Tyrion had brought down from their fastnesses in the Mountains of the Moon were loyal in their own fierce way, but they were proud and quarrelsome as well, prone to answer insults real or imagined with steel. Try to find him, and while you're at it, see that the rest have been quartered and fed. I want them in the barracks beneath the Tower of the Hand, but don't let the steward put the stone crows near the Moon Brothers, and tell him the burned men must have a all, all to themselves. Where will you be? I'm riding back to the Broken Anvil. 
Bron grinned insolently. Need an escort? The talk is, the streets are dangerous. I'll call upon the captain of my sister's household guard and remind him that I am no less a Lannister than she is. He needs to recall that his oath is to Casterly Rock, not to Cersei or Joffrey. An hour later, Tyrion rode from the Red Keep, accompanied by a dozen Lannister guardsmen in crimson cloaks and lion-crested half-helms. As they passed beneath the portcullis, he noted the heads mounted atop the walls, black with rot and old tar. They had long since become unrecognizable. Captain Villar, he called, I want those taken down on the morrow. Give them to the Silent Sisters for cleaning. It would be held to match them with the bodies, he supposed, yet it must be done. Even in the midst of war, certain decencies need to be observed. Villar grew hesitant. His grace has told us. He wishes the traitor's heads to remain on the walls until he fills those last three empty spikes there on the end. Let me hazard a wild stab. One is for Rob Stark, the others for Lord Stannis and Renly. Would that be right? Yes, my lord. My nephew is thirteen years old today, Villar. Try and recall that. I'll have the heads down on the morrow, or one of those empty spikes may have a different lodger. Do you take my meaning, Captain? I'll see that they're taken down myself, my lord. Good. Tyrion put his heels into his horse and trotted away, leaving the red cloaks to follow as best they could. He told Cersei he intended to take the measure of the city. That was not entirely a lie. Tyrion Lannister was not pleased by much of what he saw. The streets of King's Landing had always been teeming and raucous and noisy, but now they reeked of danger in a way that he did not recall from past visits. A naked corpse sprawled in the gutter near the street of looms, being torn at by a pack of feral dogs, yet no one seemed to care. Watchmen were much in evidence, moving in pairs through the alleys in their gold cloaks and shirts of black ringmail, iron cudgels never far from their hands. The markets were crowded with ragged men selling their household goods for any price they could get, and conspicuously empty of farmers selling food. What little produce he did see was three times as costly as it had been a year ago. One peddler was hawking rats, roasted on a skewer. Fresh rats! he cried loudly. Fresh rats! Doubtless fresh rats were to be preferred to old, stale, rotten rats. The frightening thing was, the rats looked more appetizing than most of what the butchers were selling. On the street of flour, Tyrion saw guards at every other shop door. When times grew lean, even bakers found sellswords cheaper than bread, he reflected. There is no food coming in, is there? he said to Valar. Little enough, the captain admitted. With the war in the Riverlands and Lord Renly raising rebels in High Garden, the roads are closed to south and west. And what has my good sister done about this? She is taking steps to restore the king's peace, Villar assured him. Lord Slint has tripled the size of the city watch, and the queen has put a thousand craftsmen to work on our defences. 
Stonemasons are strengthening the walls. Carpenters are building scorpions in catapults by the hundred. Fletchers are making arrows. The smiths are forging blades. And the Alchemist Guild has pledged 10,000 jars of wildfire. Tyrion shifted uncomfortably in his saddle. He was pleased that Cersei had not been idle. But wildfire was treacherous stuff. And 10,000 jars were enough to turn all of King's Landing into cinders. Whereas my sister found the coin to pay for all this. It was no secret that King Robert had left the crown vastly in debt. An alchemist was seldom mistaken for altruists. Lord Littlefinger always finds a way, my lord. He has imposed a tax on those wishing to enter the city. Yes, that would work, Tyrion said, thinking, clever, clever and cruel. Tens of thousands had fled the fighting for the supposed safety of King's Landing. He had seen them on the King's Road, troops of mothers and children, and anxious fathers, who had gazed on his horses and wagons with covetous eyes. Once they reached the city, they would doubtless pay over all they had to put those high, comforting walls between them and the war, though they might think twice if they knew about the wildfire. The inn beneath the sign of the broken anvil stood within sight of those walls, near the gate of the guards where they had entered that morning. As they rode into its courtyard, a boy ran out to help Tyrion down from his horse. Take your men back to the castle, he told Valor. I'll be spending the night here. The captain looked dubious. Will you be safe, my lord? Well, as to that captain, when I left the inn this morning, it was full of black ears. One is never quite safe when Shella, daughter of Cheek, is about. Tyrion waddled towards the door, leaving Valar to puzzle at his meaning. A gust of merriment greeted him as he shoved into the inn's common room. He recognized Chella's throaty chuckle and the lighter music of Shay's laughter. The girl was seated by the hearth, sipping wine at her round wooden table with three of the black ears he'd left to guard her, and a plump man whose back was to him. The innkeeper, he assumed until Shea called Tyrion by name, and the intruder rose. My good lord, I'm so pleased to see you, he gushed, a soft eunuch smile on his powdered face. Tyrion stumbled. Lord Varys, I had not thought to see you here. The others take him. How did he find them so quickly? Forgive me if I intrude, Varys said. I was taken by a sudden urge to meet your young lady. Young lady, Shay repeated, savouring the words. You're half right, my lord. I'm young. Eighteen, Tyrion thought. Eighteen and a whore, but quick of wit, nimble as a cat between the sheets, with large dark eyes and fine black hair and a sweet, soft, hungry little mouth. And mine. Damn you, eunuch. I fear I'm the intruder, Lord Varys. He said with forced courtesy. When I came in, you were in the midst of some merriment. My Lord Varus complimented Cella on her ears and said she must have killed many men to have such a fine necklace, Shay explained. It grated on him to hear her call Varus, my lord, in that tone. That was what she called him in their pillow play. And Cella told him only cowards kill the vanquished. 
Braver to leave the man alive with a chance to cleanse his shame by winning back his ear, explained Shella, a small dark woman whose grisly neckwear was hung with no less than forty-six dried, wrinkled ears. Tyrion had counted them once. Only so ye can prove ye do not fear your enemies. She hooted. And then my lord says that if he was a black ear, he'd never sleep for dreams of one-eared men. A problem I will never need face, Tyrion said. I'm terrified of my enemies, so I kill them all. Varys giggled. Will you take some wine with us, my lord? I'll take some wine. Tyrion seated himself beside Shay. He understood what was happening here if Chella and the girl did not. Varys was delivering a message. When he said, I was taken by a sudden urge to meet your young lady, what he meant was, you try to hide her. But I knew where she was and who she was, and here I am. He wondered who had betrayed him. The innkeeper, that boy in the stable, a guard on the gate, or one of his own. I always like to return to the city through the gate of the guards, Varys told Shea as he filled the wine cups. The carvings on the gatehouse are exquisite. They make me weep each time I see them. The eyes, so expressive, don't you think? They almost seem to follow you as you ride beneath the portcullis. I never noticed, my lord, Shea replied. I'll look again on the morrow if it please you. Don't bother, sweetling, Tyrion thought, swirling the wine in the cup. He cares not a whit about carvings. The eyes he boasts of are his own. What he means is that he was watching, that he knew we were here the moment we passed through the gates. Do be careful, child, Varys urged. King's Landing is not wholly safe these days. I know these streets well, and yet I almost feared to come today, alone and unarmed as I was. Lawless men are everywhere in this dark time. Oh, yes, men with cold steel and colder hearts. Where I can come alone and unarmed, others can come with swords in their fists, he was saying. Shay only laughed. If they try and bother me, they'll be one air short when Shella runs them off. Varys hooted as if that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. But there was no laughter in his eyes when he turned them on Tyrion. Your young lady has an amiable way to her. I should take very good care of her if I were you. I intend to. Any man who tries to arm her... Well, I'm too small to be a black ear, and I make no claims to courage. See, I speak the same tongue as you, eunuch. Utter, and I'll have your head. I will leave you, Varys Rose. I know how weary you must be. I only wish to welcome you, my lord, and tell you how very pleased I am by your arrival. We have dire need of you on the council. Have you seen the comet? I'm short, not blind, Tyrion said. Out on the King's Road, it seemed to cover half the sky, outshining the crescent moon. 
In the streets, they call it the Red Messenger, Varys said. They say it comes as a herald before a king to warn of fire and blood to follow. The eunuch rubbed his powdered hands together. May I leave you with a bit of a riddle, Lord Tyrion? He did not wait for an answer. In a room sit three great men, a king, a priest, and a rich man with his gold. Between them stands a sellsword, a little man of common birth and no great mind. Each of the great ones bids him slay the other two. Do it, says the king, for I am your lawful ruler. Do it, said the priest, for I command you in the name of the gods. Do it, said the rich man, and all this gold shall be yours. So tell me, who lives and who dies? Bowing deeply, the eunuch hurried from the common room on soft, slippered feet. When he was gone, Chella gave a snort, and Shay wrinkled up her pretty face. The rich man lives, doesn't he? Tyrion sipped his wine, thoughtful. Perhaps, or not. That would depend on the sailsword, it seems. He set down his cup. Come, let's go upstairs. She had to wait for him at the top of the steps, for her legs were slim and supple, while his were short and stunted and full of aches. But she was smiling when he reached her. Did you miss me? she teased as she took his hand. Desperately, Tyrion admitted. Shay only stood a shade above five feet, yet still he must look up to her. But in her case, he found he did not mind. She was sweet to look up at. You'll miss me all the time in your red keep, she said as she led him to her room, all alone in your cold bed, in your tire of the hand. Too true. Tyrion would gladly have kept her with him, but his lord father had forbidden it. You will not take the whore to court, Lord Tywin had commanded. Bringing her to the city was as much defiance as he dared. All his authority derived from his father. The girl had to understand that. You won't be far, he promised. You'll have a house with guards and servants, and I'll visit as often as I am able. Shay kicked shut the door. Through the cloudy panes of the narrow window, he could make out the great sept of Baelor crowning Visenya's hill. But Tyrion was distracted by a different sight. Bending, Shay took her gown by the hem, drew it over her head, and tossed it aside. She did not believe in small clothes. You'll never be able to rest, she said, as she stood before him, pink and nude and lovely, one hand braced on her hip. You'll think of me every time you go to bed, and you'll get hard, and you'll have no one to help you, and you'll never be able to sleep unless you... She grinned, that wicked grin Tyrion liked so well. Is that why they call it the tar of the hand, my lord? Be quiet and kiss me, he commanded. He could taste the wine on her lips and feel her small, firm breasts pressed against him as her fingers moved to the lacings of his breeches. My lion, she whispered, 
when he broke off the kiss to undress. My sweet lord, my giant of Lannister. Tyrion pushed her toward the bed. When he entered her, she screamed loud enough to wake Baelor the Blessed in his tomb, and her nails left gouges in his back. He never had a pain he liked half so well. Fool, he thought to himself afterward, as they lay in the center of the sagging mattress amidst the rumpled sheets. Will you never learn, dwarf? She's a whore, damn you. It's your coin she loves, not your cock. Remember Taisha? Yet when his fingers trailed lightly over one nipple, it stiffened at the touch, and he could see the mark on her breast where he'd bitten her in his passion. So what will you do, my lord, now that you're the end of the king? Shay asked him as he cupped that warm, sweet flesh. Something Cersei will never expect, Tyrion murmured softly against her slender neck. I'll do justice. Bran Bran preferred the hard stone of the window seat to the comforts of his feather bed and blankets. A bed, the walls pressed close, and the ceiling hung heavy above him. A bed, the room was his cell, and Winterfell his prison. Yet outside his window, the wide world still called. He could not walk, nor climb, nor hunt, nor fight with a wooden sword as once he had, but he could still look. He liked to watch the windows begin to glow all over Winterfell, as candles and hearth-fires were lit behind the diamond-shaped panes of tower and hall, and he loved to listen to the direwolf sing to the stars. Of late, he often dreamed of wolves. They are talking to me, brother to brother, he told himself when the direwolves howled. He could almost understand them. Not quite, not truly, but almost, as if they were singing in a language he had once known and somehow forgotten. The Walders might be scared of them, but the Starks had wolf blood. Old Nan told him so. Don't be stronger in some than in others, she warned. Summer's howls were long and sad, full of grief and longing. Shaggy dogs were more savage. Their voices echoed through the yards and halls until the castle rang, and it seemed as though some great pack of direwolves haunted Winterfell, instead of only two. Two where there had once been six. Do they miss their brothers and sisters too? Bran wondered. Are they calling to Grey Wind and Ghost, to Nymeria and Lady Shade? Do they want them to come home and be a pack together? Who can know the mind of a wolf? Sir Roderick Cassell said when Bran asked him why they howled. Bran's lady mother had named him Castellan of Winterfell in her absence, and his duties left him little time for idle questions. It's freedom they're calling for, declared Farland, who was kennelmaster and had no more love for the direwolves than his hounds did. They don't like being walled up, and who's to blame them? Wild things belong in the wild, not in a castle. They want to hunt, agreed Gage the cook, 
as he tossed cubes of suet into a great kettle of stew. A wolf smells better than any man. Like as not, they've caught the scent of prey. Mr. Lewin did not think so. Wolves often howl at the moon. These are howling at the comet. See how bright it is, Bran. Perchance they think it is the moon. When Bran repeated that to Usher, she laughed aloud. Your wolves have more wit than your maester, the wildland woman said. They know truths the grey man has forgotten. The way she said it made him shiver. And when he asked what the comet meant, she said, Blood and fire, boy, and nothing sweet. Bran asked Septon Shale about the comet when they were sorting through some scrolls snatched from the library fire. It's a sword that slays the season, he replied. And soon after, the white raven came from Old Town bringing word of autumn, so doubtless he was right. Though old Nan did not think so. She'd lived longer than any of them. Eh, dragons, she said, lifting her head and sniffing. She was near blind and could not see the comet, yet she claimed she could smell it. It be dragons, boy, she insisted. Bran got no princes from Nan, no more than he ever had. Hodor said only, Hodor. That was all he ever said. And still the direwolves howled. The guards on the walls muttered curses. Hounds in the kennels barked furiously. Horses kicked at their stalls. The walders shivered by their fire. And even Maester Lewin complained of sleepless nights. Only Bran did not mind. Sir Roderick had confined the wolves to the godswood after Shaggy Dog bit Little Walder, but the stones of Winterfell played queer tricks with sound, and sometimes it sounded as if they were in the yard right below Bran's window. Other times he would have sworn they were up on the curtain walls, loping around like sentries. He wished that he could see them. He could see the comet, hanging above the guard's hall and the bell tower, and farther back the first keep squatting round, its gargoyle's black shapes against the bruised purple dusk. Once Bran had known every stone of those buildings, inside and out, he'd climbed them all, scampering up walls as easily as other boys ran downstairs. The rooftops had been his secret places, and the crows atop the broken tower his special friends. And then... He had fallen. Bran did not remember falling, yet they said he had, so he supposed it must be true. He'd almost died. When he saw the weather-worn gargoyles atop the first keep where it had happened, he got a queer, tight feeling in his belly. And now he could not climb, nor walk, nor run, nor sword fight. And the dreams he dreamed of knighthood had soured in his head. Summer had howled the day Bran had fallen, and for long after as he lay broken in his bed. Rob had told him so before he went away to war. Summer had mourned for him, and Shaggy Dog and Grey Wind had joined in his grief. And the night the Bloody Raven had brought word of their father's death, the wolves had known that too. Bran had been in the maester's turret with Rickon, talking of the children of the forest, when Summer and Shaggy Dog had drowned out Lewin with their howls. 
Who are they mourning now? Had some enemy slain the king in the north, who used to be his brother, Rob? Had his bastard brother, Jon Snow, fallen from the wall? Had his mother died, or one of his sisters? Or was this something else, as Maester and Septon and Old Nan seemed to think? If I were truly a direwolf, I would understand the song, he thought wistfully. In his wolf dreams, he could race up the side of mountains, jagged icy mountains taller than any tower, and stand at the summit beneath the full moon with all the world below him the way it used to be. Ow! Bran cried tentatively. He cupped his hands around his mouth and lifted his head to the comet. Ow! Ow! He howled. It sounded stupid, high and hollow and quavering, a little boy's howl, not a wolf's. Yet Summer gave answer, his deep voice drowning out Bran's thin one, and Shaggy Dog made it a chorus. Bran hurrooed again. They howled together, last of their pack. The noise brought a guard to his door, Hayhead, with a wen on his nose. He appeared in, saw Bran howling out of the window, and said, "'What's this, my prince?' It made Bran feel queer when they called him Prince. Although he was Rob's heir, and Rob was king in the north now, he turns head to howl at the guard. Oh! Oh! Ahead screwed up his face. Now you stop that there. Oh! Oh! The guardsman retreated. When he came back, Maester Lewin was with him, all in grey, his chain tight about his neck. Bran, those beasts make sufficient noise without your help. He crossed the room and put his hand on the boy's brow. The hour grows late. You ought to be fast asleep. I'm talking to the wolves. Bran brushed the hand aside. Shall I have Hayhead carry you to your bed? I can get to bed myself. Micken had hammered a row of iron bars into the wall so Bran could pull himself about the room with his arms. It was slow and hard, and it made his shoulders ache, but he hated being carried. Anyway, I don't have to sleep if I don't want to. All men must sleep, Bren, even princes. When I sleep, I turn into a wolf. Bran turned his face away and looked back out into the night. Do wolves dream? All creatures dream, I think, yet not as men do. Do dead men dream? Bran asked, thinking of his father. In the dark crypts below Winterfell, a stonemason was chiseling out his father's likeness in granite. Some say yes, some no, the maester answered. The dead themselves are silent on the matter. Do trees dream? Trees? No. They do, Bran said with sudden certainty. They dream tree dreams. I dream of a tree sometimes. A weirwood, like the one in the guard's wood. It calls to me. The wolf dreams are better. I smell things, and sometimes I can taste the blood. Maester Lewin tugged his chain where it chafed his neck. If you would only spend more time with the other children. I hate the other children, Bran said, meaning the Walders. I commanded you to send them away. Lewin grew stern. The Freys are your lady mother's wards, sent here to be fostered at her express command. It is not for you to expel them, 
nor is it kind. If we turn them out, where would they go? Home. It's therefore you won't let me have summer. The Frey boy did not ask to be attacked, the maester said, no more than I did. That was Shaggy Dog. Rickon's big black wolf was so wild, he even frightened Bran at times. Summer never bit anyone. Summer ripped out a man's throat in this very chamber, or have you forgotten? The truth is, those sweet pups you and your brothers found in the snow have grown into dangerous beasts. The Frey boys are wise to be wary of them. We should put the Walders in the godswood. They could play Lord of the Crossing all they want, and Summer could sleep with me again. If I'm the prince, why won't you heed me? I wanted to ride Dancer, but Alebelly wouldn't let me pass the gate. And rightly so. The Wolf's Wood is full of danger. Your last ride should have taught you that. Would you want some outlaw to take you captive and sell you to the Lannisters? Summer would save me. Bran insisted stubbornly. Princes should be allowed to sail the sea and hunt boar in the wolf's wood and joust with lances. Bran, child, why do you torment yourself so? One day you may do some of these things, but now you're only a boy of eight. I'd sooner be a wolf than I could live in the wood and sleep when I wanted. And I could find Arya and Sansa. I'd smell where they were and go save them. And when Rob went to battle, I'd fight beside him like Grey Wind. I'd tear out the Kingslayer's throat with my teeth, rip, and then the war would be over and everyone would come back to Winterfell. If I was a wolf, he howled, Oh! Lewin raised his voice. A true prince would welcome, Oh! Bran howled louder, Oh! The maester surrendered. As you will, child. With a look that was part grief and part disgust, he left the bedchamber. Howling lost its savour once Bran was alone. After a time, he quieted. I did welcome them, he told himself, resentful. I was the lord in Winterfell, a true lord. Can't say I wasn't. When the Walders arrived from the towers... It had been Rickon who wanted them gone. A baby of four, he had screamed that he wanted mother and father and Rob, not these strangers. It had been up to Bran to soothe him and bid the phrase welcome. He had offered them meat and mead and a seat by the fire, and even Maester Lewin had said afterward that he had done well. Only that was before the game. The game was played with a log, a staff, a body of water and a great deal of shouting. The water was the most important, Walder and Walder assured Bran. You could use a plank or even a series of stones, and a branch could be your staff. You didn't have to shout, but without water there was no game. As Maester Lewin and Sir Roderick were not about to let the children go wandering off into the wolf's wood in search of a stream, they made do with one of the murky pools in the godswood. Walder and Walder had never seen hot water bubbling from the ground before, but they both allowed how it would make the game even better. Both of them were called Walder Frey. Big Walder said there were bunches of Walders at the twins, all named after the boy's grandfather, Lord Walder Frey. We have our own names at Winterfell, 
Rick and told them haughtily when he heard that. The way their game was played, you laid a log across the water, and one player stood in the middle with a stick. He was the lord of the crossing, and when one of the other players came up, he had to say, I am the lord of the crossing, who goes there? And the other player had to make up a speech about who they were and why they should be allowed to cross. The lord could make them swear oaths and answer questions. They didn't have to tell the truth, but the oaths were binding unless they said mayhaps. So the trick was to say mayhaps so the lord of the crossing didn't notice. Then you could try and knock the lord into the water, and you got to be lord of the crossing, but only if you'd said mayhaps. Otherwise, you were out of the game. The lord got to knock anyone in the water any time he pleased, and he was the only one who got to use a stick. In practice, the game seemed to come down to mostly shoving, hitting, and falling into the water, along with a lot of loud arguments about whether or not someone had said mayhaps. Little Walder was lord of the crossing more often than not. He was Little Walder even though he was tall and stout, with a red face and a big round belly. Big Walder was sharp-faced and skinny and half a foot shorter. He's fifty-two days older than me, Little Walder explained, so he was bigger at first, but I grew faster. We're cousins, not brothers, answered Big Walder, the little one. I'm Walder, son of Jamus. My father was Lord Walder's son by his fourth wife. He's Walder's son of merit. His grandmother was Lord Walder's third wife, the Craycore. He's ahead of me in the line of succession, even though I'm older. Only by fifty-two days, little Walder objected, and neither of us will ever hold the twins, stupid. I will, big Walder declared. We're not the only Walders, either. Sir Stevron has a grandson, Black Walder. He's fourth in line of succession. And there's Red Walder, Sir Eamon's son, and Bastard Walder, who isn't in the line at all. He's called Walder Rivers, not Walder Frey. Plus, there's girls named Walder. And Tyre, you always forget Tyre. He's Waltire, not Walder, Big Walder said airily. And he's after us, so he doesn't matter. Anyhow, I never liked him. Sir Roderick decreed that they would share John Snow's old bedchamber, since John was in the night's watch and never coming back. Bran hated that. It made him feel as if the Freys were trying to steal John's place. He had watched wistfully while the Walders contested with Turnip the Cook's boy and Joseph's girls Bandy and Shira. The Walders had decreed that Bran should be the judge and decide whether or not people had said mayhaps. But as soon as they started playing, they forgot all about him. The shouts and splashes soon drew others. Pallor, the kennel girl. Kane's boy, Kalen. Tom, too, whose father, Fat Tom, had died with Bran's father at King's Landing. Before very long, every one of them was soaked and muddy. Pallor was brown from head to heel, with moss in her hair, breathless from laughter. Bran had not heard so much laughing since the night the bloody raven came. If I had my legs, I'd knock them all into the water, he thought bitterly. No one would ever be Lord of the Crossing but me. Finally, Rickon came running into the godswood, shaggy dog at his heels. 
He watched Turnip and Little Walder struggle for the stick until Turnip lost his footing and went in with a huge splash, arms waving. Rickon yelled, Me! Me now! I want to play! Little Walder beckoned him on, and Shaggy Dog started to follow. No, Shaggy! his brother commanded. Wolves can't play. You stay with Bran. And he did. Until Little Walder had smacked Rickon with a stick square across his belly. Before Bran could blink, the black wolf was flying over the plank. There was blood in the water. The Walders were shrieking red murder. Rickon sat in the mud laughing. And Hoda came lumbering in, shouting, Hoda! 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 After that, oddly, Rickon decided he liked the Walders. They never played Lord of the Crossing again, but they played other games. Monsters and maidens, rats and cats, come into my castle, all sorts of things. With Rickon by their side, the Walders plundered the kitchen for pies and honeycombs, raced round the walls, tossed bones to the pups in the kennels, and trained with wooden swords under Sir Roderick's sharp eye. Rickon even showed them the deep vaults under the earth, where the stonemason was carving father's tomb. You had no right, Bran screamed at his brother when he heard. That was our place, a stark place. But Rickon never cared. The door to his bedchamber opened. Maester Lewin was carrying a green jar, and this time Usher and Hayhead came with him. I've made you a sleeping draught, Bran. Usher scooped him up in her bony arms. She was very tall for a woman, and wiry strong. She bore him effortlessly to his bed. This will give you dreamless sleep, Mr. Lewin said as he pulled the stopper from the jar. Sweet, dreamless sleep. It will, Bran said, wanting to believe. Yes, drink. Bran drank. The potion was thick and chalky, but there was honey in it, so it went down easy. Come the morn, you'll feel better. Lewin gave Bran a smile and a pat as he took his leave. Osher lingered behind. Is it the wolf dreams again? Bran nodded. You should not fight so hard, boy. I see you talking to the heart tree. Maybe the gods are trying to talk back. The gods? he murmured drowsy already. Usher's face grew blurry and grey. Sweet, dreamless sleep, Bran thought. Yet when the darkness closed over him, he found himself in the godswood, moving silently beneath green-grey sentinels and gnarled oaks as old as time. I am walking, he thought, exulting. Part of him knew that it was only a dream. But even the dream of walking was better than the truth of his bedchamber, walls, and ceiling, and door. It was dark amongst the trees, but the comet lit his way, and his feet were sure. He was moving on four good legs, strong and swift, and he could feel the ground underfoot, the soft crackling of fallen leaves, thick roots and hard stones, the deep layers of humus. It was a good feeling. The smells filled his head, alive and intoxicating. The green, muddy stink of the hot pools. The perfume of rich, rotting earth beneath his paws. The squirrels in the oaks. The scent of squirrel made him remember 
the taste of hot blood and the way the bones would crack beneath his teeth. Slaver filled his mouth. He had eaten no more than half a day past, yet there was no joy in dead meat, even deer. He could hear the squirrels chittering and rustling above him, safe among their leaves, but they knew better than to come down to where his brother and he were prowling. He could smell his brother, too, a familiar scent, strong and earthy, his scent as black as his coat. His brother was loping around the walls, full of fury. Round and round he went, night after day after night, tireless, searching for prey, for a way out, for his mother, his littermates, his pack, searching, searching, and never finding. Behind the trees, the walls rose, piles of dead man-rock that loomed about this speck of living wood. Speckled grey they rose, and moss-spotted, yet thick and strong, and higher than any wolf could hope to leap. Cold iron and splintery wood closed off the only holes through the piled stones that hemmed them in. His brother would stop at every hole and bear his fangs in rage, but the ways stayed closed. He had done the same the first night and learned it was no good. Snarls would open no paths here. Circling the walls would not push them back. Lifting a leg and marking the trees would keep no men away. The world had tightened around them, but beyond the walled wood still stood the great grey caves of man-rock. Winterfell, he remembered, the sun coming to him suddenly. Beyond its sky-tall man-cliffs, the true world was calling, and he knew he must answer or die. Arya. They travelled dawn to dusk, past woods and orchards and neatly tended fields, through small villages, crowded market towns and stout holdfasts. Come dark, they would make camp and eat by the light of the red sword. The men took turns standing watch. Arya would glimpse firelight flickering through the trees from the camps of other travellers. There seemed to be more camps every night, and more traffic on the King's Road by day. Morn, noon, and night they came, old folks and little children, big men and small ones, barefoot girls, and women with babes at their breasts. Some drove farm wagons, or bumped along in the back of ox carts. More rode, draft horses, ponies, mules, donkeys, anything that would walk or run or roll. One woman led a milk cow with a little girl on its back. Arya saw a smith pushing a wheelbarrow with his tools inside, hammers and tongues, and even an anvil. A little while later, a different man with a different wheelbarrow. Only inside this one were two babies in a blanket. Most came on foot with their goods on their shoulders and weary, weary looks upon their faces. They walked south toward the city toward King's Landing, and only one in a hundred spared so much as a word for Yorin and his charges, travelling north. She wondered why no one else was going the same way as them. Many of the travellers were armed. Arya saw daggers and dirks, 
scythes and axes, and here and there a sword. Some had made cubs from tree limbs or carved knobby staffs. They fingered their weapons and gave lingering looks at the wagons as they rolled by. Yet in the end, they let the column pass. Thirty was too many, no matter what they had in those wagons. Look with your eyes, Sirio had said. Listen with your ears. One day, a mad woman began to scream at them from the side of the road. Fools! They'll kill you! Fools! She was scarecrow thin, with hollow eyes and bloody feet. The next morning, a sleek merchant on a grey mare reined up by Yorin, and offered to buy his wagons and everything in them for a quarter of their worth. It's war. They'll take what they want. You'll do better selling to me, my friend. Yorin turned away with a twist of his crooked shoulders and spat. Arya noticed the first grave that same day, a small mound beside the road, dug for a child. A crystal had been set in the soft earth, and Lummy wanted to take it until the bull told him he'd better leave the dead alone. A few leagues farther on, Prade pointed out more graves, a whole row freshly dug. After that, a day hardly passed without one. One time Arya woke in the dark, frightened for no reason she could name. Above, the red sword shared the sky with half a thousand stars. The night seemed oddly quiet to her, though she could hear Yorin's muttered snores, the crackle of the fire, even the muffled stirrings of the donkeys. Yet somehow it felt as though the world were holding its breath, and the silence made her shiver. She went back to sleep, clutching needle. Come morning, when Prade did not awaken, Arya realized that it had been his coughing she had missed. They dug a grave of their own then, burying the sellsword where he'd slept. Yoran stripped him of his valuables before they threw the dirt on him. One man claimed his boots, another his dagger. His mail shirt and helm were parceled out. His long sword, Yorin handed to the bull. Arms like yours might be. You can learn to use this, he told him. A boy called Taba tossed a handful of acorns on top of Prade's body so an oak might grow to mark his place. That evening they stopped in a village at an ivy-covered inn. Yorin counted the coins in his purse and decided they had enough for a hot meal. We'll sleep outside, same as ever, but they've got a bathhouse here. If any of you feels the need of hot water and a lick of soap. Arya did not dare, even though she smelled as bad as Yorin by now, all sour and stinky. Some of the creatures living in her clothes had come all the way from Flea Bottom with her. It didn't seem right to drown them. Tarba and Hot Pie and the Bull joined the line of men headed for the tubs. Others settled down in front of the bathhouse. The rest crowded into the common room. Yoran even sent Lummy out with tankards for the three infetters who had been left chained up in the back of their wagon. Washed and unwashed alike, supped on hot pork pies and baked apples. The innkeeper gave them a round of beer on the house. I had a brother took the black years ago. Serve him, boy. 
clever, but one day he got seen filching pepper from my lord's table. He liked the taste of it, is all. Just a pinch of pepper, but Sir Malcolm was a hard man. You get pepper on the wall? When Yorin shook his head, the man sighed. Shame. Linked love, that pepper. Arya sipped at her tankard cautiously, between spoonfuls of pie still warm from the oven. Her father sometimes let them have a cup of beer, she remembered. Sansa used to make a face at the taste of it, and say that wine was ever so much finer. But Arya had liked it well enough. It made her sad to think of Sansa and her father. The inn was full of people moving south and the common room erupted in scorn when Yorin said they were travelling the other way. You'll be back soon enough, the innkeeper vowed. There's no going north. Half the fields are burnt, and what folk are left are walled up inside their holdfasts. One bunch rides off at dawn, and another one shows up by dusk. That's nothing to us. Yorin insisted stubbornly. Tully of Lannister makes no matter. The watch takes no part. Lord Tully is my grandfather, Arya thought. It mattered to her. But she chewed her lip and kept quiet, listening. It's more than Lannister and Tully, the innkeeper said. There's wild men down from the mountains of the moon. Try telling them... You take no part. And the Starks are in it, too. The young lords come down, the dead and son. Arya sat up straight, straining to hear. Did he mean Rob? I heard the boy rides to battle on a wolf, said a yellow-haired man with a tankard in his hand. Fool's talk, Yorin spat. The man I heard it from, he saw it himself. A wolf big as a horse, he swore. Swearing don't make it true, Odd, the innkeeper said. You keep swearing you'll pay what you owe me, and I've yet to see a copper. The common room erupted in laughter, and the man with the yellow hair turned red. It's been a bad year for wolves, volunteered a sallow man in a travel-stained green cloak. Around the gods, I... The packs have grown bolder than anyone can remember. Sheep, cows, dogs, makes no difference. They kill as they like, and they got no fear of men. It's worth your life to go in those woods by night. Ah, that's more tales, and no more true than the other. I heard the same thing from my cousin, and she's not the sort to lie, an old woman said. She says there's this great pack, hundreds of them, man-killers. The one that leads them is a she-wolf, a bitch from the seventh hell. A she-wolf? Arya slushed her beer, wondering. Was the god's eye near the Tritoned? She wished she had a map. It had been near the Tritoned that she'd left Nymeria. She hadn't wanted to, but Jory said they had no choice, that if the wolf came back with them, she'd be killed for biting Joffrey even though he deserved it. They had to shout and scream and throw stones, and it wasn't until a few of Arya's stones struck home 
that the direwolf had finally stopped following them. She probably wouldn't even know me now, Arya thought, or if she did, she'd hate me. The man in the green cloak said, I heard how this hell bitch walked into a village one day, a market day, people everywhere, and she walks in bold as you please and tears a baby from its mother's arms. When the tale reached Lord Mooton, him and his son swore they'd put an end to her. They tracked her to a lair with a pack of wolfhounds and barely escaped with their skins. Not one of those dogs came back. Not one. That's just the story, Arya blurted out before she could stop herself. Wolves don't eat babies. And what will you know about it, lad? Asked the man in the green cloak. Before she could think of an answer, Yorin had her by the arm. The boy's green sick on beer. That's all it is. No, I'm not. They don't eat babies. Outside, boy. And see that you stay there until you learn to shut your mouth when men are talking. He gave her a stiff shove towards the side door that led back to the stables. Go on now. See that the stable boy has watered our horses. Arya went outside, stiff with fury. They don't, she muttered, kicking at a rock as she stalked off. It went rolling and fetched up under the wagons. Boy, a friendly voice called out, lovely boy. One of the men in irons was talking to her. Wearily, Arya approached the wagon, one hand on Needle's hilt. The prisoner lifted an empty tankard, his chains rattling. A man could use another taste of beer. A man has a thirst wearing these heavy bracelets. He was the youngest of the three, slender, fine-featured, always smiling. His hair was red on one side and white on the other, all matted and filthy from cage and travel. A man could use a bath too, he said, when he saw the way Arya was looking at him. A boy could make a friend. I have friends, Arya said. None, I can say, said the one without a nose. He was squat and thick, with huge hands. Black hair covered his arms and legs and chest, even his back. He reminded Arya of a drawing she had once seen in a book, of an ape from the Summer Isles. The hole in his face made it hard to look at him for long. The bald one opened his mouth and hissed like some immense white lizard. When Arya flinched back, startled, he opened his mouth wide and waggled his tongue at her. Only it was more of a stump than a tongue. Stop that, she blurted. A man does not choose his companions in the black cells, the handsome one with the red and white hair said. Something about the way he talked reminded her of Syria. It was the same, yet different too. These two, they have no courtesy. A man must ask forgiveness. You are called Arry, is that not so? Lumpy head, said the noseless one. Lumpy head, lumpy face, sick boy. Have a care, Loweth. He'll hit you with his thick. A man must be ashamed of the company he keeps, Arry, the handsome one said. This man has the honor to be Jake and Hagar, once of the free city of Lorith. Would that he were home. This man's ill-bred companions in captivity are named Rorg. 
He waved his tankard at the noseless man, and Biter. Biter hissed at her again, displaying a mouthful of yellowed teeth filed into points. A man must have some name. Is that not so? Biter cannot speak, and Biter cannot write. Yet his teeth are very sharp, so a man calls him Biter, and he smiles. Are you charmed? Arya backed away from the wagon. No. They can't hurt me, she told herself. They're all chained up. He turned his tankard upside down. A man must weep. Rorg, the noseless one, flung his drinking cup at her with a curse. His manacles made him clumsy, yet even so he would have sent the heavy pewter tankard crashing into her head if Arya hadn't leapt aside. You get us some beer, pimple, now! You shut your mouth. Arya tried to think what Sirio would have done. She drew her wooden practice sword. Come closer, Rorg said. I'll shove that sick up your bungo and fuck you bloody. Fear cuts deeper than swords. Arya made herself approach the wagon. Every step was harder than the one before. Fierce as a wolverine, calm as still water. The words sang in her head. Sirio would not have been afraid. She was almost close enough to touch the wheel when Biter lurched to his feet and grabbed for her, his irons clanking and rattling. The manacles brought his hands up short, half a foot from her face. He hissed. She hit him, hard, right between his little eyes. Screaming, Biter reeled back and then threw all his weight against his chains. The link slithered and turned and grew taut and Arya heard the creak of old dry wood as the great iron rings strained against the floorboards of the wagon. Huge, pale hands groped for her, while veins bulged along Biter's arms. But the bonds held, and finally the man collapsed backward. Blood ran from the weeping sores on his cheeks. A boy has more courage than sense, the one who named himself Jaken Hagar observed. Arya edged backwards away from the wagon. When she felt the hand on her shoulder, she whirled, bringing up her stick sword again. But it was only the bull. What are you doing? He raised his hands defensively. Yawen said none of us should go near those three. They don't scare me, Arya said. Then you're stupid. They scare me. The bull's hand fell to the hilt of his sword, and Rorg began to laugh. Let's get away from them. Arya scuffed at the ground with her foot, but she let the bull lead her around to the front of the inn. Rorg's laughter and Biter's hissing followed them. Want to fight? she asked the bull. She wanted to hit something. He blinked at her, startled. Strands of thick black hair, still wet from the bathhouse, fell across his deep blue eyes. I'd hurt you. You would not? You don't know how strong I am. You don't know how quick I am. You're asking for it, Harry. He drew Prade's longsword. This is cheap steel, but it's a real sword. Arya unsheathed needle. This is good steel, so it's realer than yours. The bull shook his head. Promise not to cry if I'll cut you. I'll promise if you will. She turned sideways into a water dancer's stance 
but the bull did not move. He was looking at something behind her. What's wrong? Gold cloaks. His face closed up tight. It couldn't be, Arya thought. But when she glanced back, they were riding up the king's road, six in the black ring mail and gold cloaks of the city watch. One was an officer. He wore a black enamel breastplate ornamented with four golden discs. They drew up in front of the inn. Look with your eyes, Sirio's voice seemed to whisper. Her eyes saw white leather under their saddles. The horses had been ridden long and hard. Calm as still water, she took the bull by the arm and drew him back behind a tall flowering hedge. What is it? he asked. What are you doing? Let go. Quiet as a shadow, she whispered, pulling him down. Some of Yorin's other charges were sitting in front of the bathhouse, waiting their turn at the tub. You men, one of the gold cloaks shouted. You the ones left to take the black? We might be, came the cautious answer. We'd rather join you boys, old Rayson said. We hear it's cold on that wall. The gold cloak officer dismounted. I have a warrant for a certain boy. Yorin stepped out of the inn, fingering his tangled black beard. Who is it wants this boy? The other gold cloaks were dismounting to stand beside their horses. Why are we hiding? The bull whispered. It's me they want, Arya whispered back. His ear smelled of soap. You be quiet. The queen wants him, old man. Not that it's your concern, the officer said, drawing a ribbon from his belt. Here, her grace's seal and warrant. Behind the hedge, the bull shook his head doubtfully. Why would the queen want you, Harry? She punched his shoulder. Be quiet. Yorin fingered the warrant ribbon with its blob of golden wax. Pretty, <laughs> he spit. Thing is, the boy's in the night's watch now. What he'd done back in the city don't mean piss all. Uh, the Queen's not interested in your views, old man, and neither am I, the officer said. I'll have the boy. Arya thought about running, but she knew she couldn't get far in her donkey when the gold cloaks had horses, and she was so tired of running. She'd run when Samerin came for her, and again when they killed her father. If she was a real water dancer, she would go out there with Needle and kill all of them, and never run from anyone ever again. You'll have no one, Yorin said stubbornly. There's laws on such things. The gold cloak drew a short sword. Here's your law. Yorin looked at the blade. That's no law, just a sword. Happens I got one too. The officer smiled. Old fool, I have five men with me. Yorin spat. Happens I got thirty. The gold cloak laughed. This lot, said a big lad for the broken nose. Who's first? He shouted, showing his steel. Tarba plucked a pitchfork out of a bale of hay. I am. No, I am, cried Cutjack. The plump stonemason, pulling his hammer off the leather apron he always wore. Me? Kurtz came up off the ground with his skinning knife in hand. Me and him? Cuss strung his longbow. 
all of us, said Rayson, snatching up the tall hardwood walking staff he carried. Dubber stepped naked out of the bathhouse with his clothes in a bundle, saw what was happening, and dropped everything but his dagger. Is it a fight? he asked. I guess, said Hot Pie, scrambling on all fours for a big rock to throw. Arya could not believe what she was seeing. She hated Hot Pie. Why would he risk himself for her? The one with the broken nose still thought it was funny. You girls, put away them rocks and sticks before you get spanked. None of you knows what end of a sword to hold. I do. Arya wouldn't let them die for her like Syria. She wouldn't. Shoving through the hedge with needle in hand, she slid into a water dancer's stance. Broken nose guffawed. The officer looked her up and down. Oh, put the blade away, little girl. No one wants to hurt you. I'm not a girl, she yelled furious. What was wrong with them? They rode all this way for her, and here she was, and there they were, just smiling at her. I'm the one you want. You want. He is the one we want. The officer jabbed his short sword toward the bull, who'd come forward to stand beside her, Prade's cheap steel in his hand. But it was a mistake to take his eyes off Yorin, even for an instant. Quick as that, the Black Brother's sword was pressed to the apple of the officer's throat. Neither's the one you get, lest you want me to see if your apple's ripe yet. I got me ten, fifteen more brothers in that inn. If you still need convincing, I was you. I let loose of that gut cutter, spread my cheeks over that fat little horse, and gallop on back to the city. He sat and poked harder with the point of his sword. Now, the officer's fingers uncurled. His sword fell in the dust. We'll just keep that, Yorin said. Good steel's always needed on the wall. As you say, for now. Men? The gold cloak sheathed and mounted up. You'd best scamper up to that wall of yours in a hurry, old man. The next time I catch you, I believe I'll have your hair to go with the bastard boys. Better men than you've tried. Yoren slapped the rump of the officer's horse with the flat of his sword and sent him reeling off down the king's road. His men followed. When they were out of sight, Hot Pie began to whoop. But Yoren looked angrier than ever. Fool! You think he's done with this? Next time he won't prance up and end me no damn ribbon. Get the rest out of them baths. We need to be moving. Ride all night. Maybe we can stay ahead of them for a bit. He scooped up the short sword the officer had dropped. Who wants this? Me! Up Pie yelled. Don't be using it on Harry. He handed the boy the sword hilt first and walked over to Arya. But it was the bull he spoke to. Queen wants you bad, boy. Arya was lost. Why should she want him? The bull scowled at her. Why should she want you? You're nothing but a little gutter rat. Well, you're nothing but a bastard boy. Or maybe he was only pretending to be a bastard boy. What's your true name? Uh, Gendry, he said, like he wasn't quite sure. 
Don't see why no one wants neither of you, Yorin said. But they can't have you regardless. You ride them two courses. First sight of a gold cloak, make for the wall like a dragon's on your tail. The rest of us don't mean spit to them. Except for you, Arya pointed out. That man said he'd take your head too. Well, as to that, Yorin said. If he can get it off my shoulders, he's welcome to it. John. Sam, John called softly. The air smelled of paper and dust and years. Before him, tall wooden shells rose up into dimness, crammed with leather-bound books and bins of ancient scrolls. A faint yellow glow filtered through the stacks from some hidden lamp. John blew out the taper he carried, preferring not to risk an open flame amid so much old dry paper. Instead, he followed the light, wending his way down the narrow aisles beneath barrow-vaulted ceilings. All in black, he was a shadow among shadows, dark of hair, long of face, grey of eye. Black moleskin gloves covered his hands. The right because it was burned, the left because a man felt half a fool wearing only one glove. Samuel Tarley sat hunched over a table in a niche carved into the stone of the wall. The glow came from the lamp hung above his head. He looked up at the sound of John's steps. Have you been here all night? Have I? Sam looked startled. You didn't break your fast with us and your bed hadn't been slept in. Rast suggested that maybe Sam had deserted, but John never believed it. Desertion required its own sort of courage, and Sam had little enough of that. Is it morning? Down here there's no way to know. Sam, you're a sweet fool, John said. You'll miss that bed when we're sleeping on the cold, hard ground, I promise you. Sam yawned. Maester Aymond sent me to find maps for the Lord Commander. I never thought. John, the books. Have you ever seen their like? There are thousands. He gazed about him. The library at Winterfell has more than a hundred. Did you find the maps? Oh, yes. Sam's hand swept over the table, fingers plump as sausages, indicating the clutter of books and scrolls before him. A dozen, at the least. He unfolded a square of parchment. The paint has faded, but you can see where the mapmaker marked the sites of wilding villages. And there's another book. Uh, where is it now? I was reading it a moment ago. He shoved some scrolls aside to reveal a dusty volume bound in rotted leather. This, he said reverently, is the account of a journey from the Shadow Tower all the way to Lorne Point on the frozen shore, written by a ranger named Redwine. It's not dated, but he mentions a Dorin Stark as King of the North, so it must be from before the conquest. John, they fought giants. Red wine even traded with the children of the forest. It's all here. Ever so delicately, he turned pages with a finger. 
He drew maps as well. See? Maybe you could write an account of our ranging, Sam. He'd meant to sound encouraging, but it was the wrong thing to say. The last thing Sam needed was to be reminded of what faced them on the morrow. He shuffled the scrolls about aimlessly. There's more maps, if I had time to search. Everything's a jumble. I could set it all to order, though. I know I could. But it would take time, well, years in truth. Mormont wanted those maps a little sooner than that. John plucked a scroll from a bin, blew off the worst of the dust. A corner flaked off between his fingers as he unrolled it. Look, this one is crumbling, he said, frowning over the faded script. Be gentle. Sam came around the table and took the scroll from his hand, holding it as if it were a wounded animal. The important books used to be copied over when they needed them. Some of the oldest have been copied half a hundred times, probably. Well, don't bother copying that one. Twenty-three barrels of pickled cod, eighteen jars of fish oil, a cask of salt, an inventory, Sam said, or perhaps a bill of sale. Who cares how much pickled cod they ate six hundred years ago? John wondered. I would. Sam carefully replaced the scroll in the bin from which John had plucked it. You can learn so much from ledgers like that. Truly you can. It can tell you how many men were in the night's watch then, how they lived, what they ate. They ate food, John said, and they lived as we live. You'd be surprised. This fault is a treasure, John. Well, if you say so. John was doubtful. Treasure meant gold, silver, and jewels, not dust, spiders, and rotting leather. I do, the fat boy blurted. He was older than John, a man grown by law. But it was hard to think of him as anything but a boy. I found drawings of the faces in the trees and a book about the tongue of the children of the forest. Works that even the citadel doesn't have. Scrolls from old Valeria. Counts of the seasons written by maesters dead a thousand years. The books will still be here when we return. If we return. The old bear is taking two hundred seasoned men, three quarters of them rangers. Corrin Halfhand will be bringing another hundred brothers from the Shadow Tower. You'll be as safe as if you were back in your Lord Father's castle at Horn Hill. Samuel Tarley managed a sad little smile. I was never very safe in my father's castle either. The guards play cruel jests, John thought. Pip and Toad, all a lather to be part of the great ranging, were to remain at Castle Black. It was Samuel Tarley, the self-proclaimed coward, grossly fat, timid, and near as bad a rider as he was with a sword, who must face the haunted forest. The old bear was taking two cages of ravens, so they might send back word as they went. Maester Eamon was blind and far too frail to ride with them, so his steward must go in his place. We need you for the raven, Sam, and someone has to help me keep Gren humble. Sam's chins quivered. You could care for the ravens, or Gren could, or anyone, he said with a thin edge of desperation in his voice. I could show you how. 
You know your letters, too. You could write down Lord Mormon's messages as well as I. I'm the old bear Stuart. I'll need to squire for him, tend his horse, set up his tent. I won't have time to watch over birds as well. Sam, you said the words. You're a brother of the Night's Watch now. A brother of the Night's Watch shouldn't be so scared. We're all scared. We'd be fools if we weren't. Too many rangers had been lost the past two years, even Benjamin Stark, John's uncle. They had found two of his uncle's men in the wood, slain. But the corpses had risen in the chill of night. John's burnt fingers twitched as he remembered. He still saw the white in his dreams. Dead Arthur, with the burning blue eyes and the cold black hands. But that was the last thing Sam needed to be reminded of. There's no shame in fear, my father told me. What matters is how we face it. Come, I'll help you gather up the maps. Sam nodded unhappily. The shells were so closely spaced that they had to walk single file as they left. The vault opened into one of the tunnels the brothers called the Worm Walks, winding subterranean passages that linked the keeps and towers of Castle Black under the earth. In summer, the Worm Walks were seldom used, save by rats and other vermin, but winter was a different matter. When the snows drifted forty and fifty feet high, and the ice winds came howling out of the north, the tunnels were all that held Castle Black together. Soon, John thought, as they climbed. He'd seen the harbinger that had come to Maester Eamon with word of summer's end, the great raven of the citadel, white and silent as ghost. He had seen a winter once, when he was very young, and everyone agreed that it had been a short one and mild. This one would be different. He could feel it in his bones. The steep stone steps had Sam puffing like a blacksmith's bellows by the time they reached the surface. They emerged into a brisk wind that made John's cloak swirl and snap. Ghost was stretched out asleep beneath the wattland door wall of the granary, but he woke when John appeared. Bushy white tail held stiffly upright as he trotted to them. Sam squinted up at the wall. It loomed above them, an icy cliff, seven hundred feet high. Sometimes it seemed to John almost a living thing, with moods of its own. The color of the ice was wont to change with every shift of the light. Now it was the deep blue of frozen rivers, now the dirty white of old snow, and when a cloud passed before the sun, it darkened to the pale gray of pitted stone. The wall stretched east and west as far as the eye could see, so huge that it shrunk the timbered keeps and stone towers of the castle to insignificance. It was the end of the world. And we are going beyond it. The morning sky was streaked by thin grey clouds, but the pale red line was there behind them. The Black Brothers had dubbed the wanderer Mormon's Torch, saying, only half in jest, that the guards must have sent it to light the old man's way through the haunted forest. The comet's so bright you can see it by day now, Sam said, shading his eyes with a fistful of books. Never mind about comets. It's maps the old bear wants. Ghost loped ahead of them. 
The ground seemed deserted this morning, with so many rangers off at the brothel in Molestown, digging for buried treasure and drinking themselves blind. Gren had gone with them. Pip and Halderan Toad had offered to buy him his first woman to celebrate his first ranging. They wanted John and Sam to come as well, but Sam was almost as frightened of whores as he was of the haunted forest, and John wanted no part of it. Do what you want, he told Toad. I took a vow. As they passed the sept, he heard voices raised in song. Some men want whores on the eve of battle, and some want guards. John wondered who felt better afterwards. The sept tempted him no more than the brothel. His own guards kept their temples in the wild places, where the weirwood spread their bone-white branches. The seven have no power beyond the wall, he thought, but my guards will be waiting. Outside the armory, Sir Andrew Tarth was working with some raw recruits. They'd come in last night with Conway, one of the wandering crows who roamed the Seven Kingdoms, collecting men for the wall. This new crop consisted of a grey beard leaning on the staff, two blond boys with the look of brothers, a foppish youth in soiled satin, a raggy man with a club foot, and some grinning loon who must have fancied himself a warrior. Sir Andrew was showing him the error of that presumption. He was a gentler master at arms, than Sir Alistair Thorne had been, but his lessons would still raise bruises. Sam winced at every blow, but Jon Snow watched the sword play closely. "'What ye make of them, Snow?' Donald Noy stood in the door of his armoury, bare-chested under a leather apron, the stump of his left arm uncovered for once. With his big gut and barrel chest, his flat nose and bristly black jaw, Noy did not make a pretty sight, but he was a welcome one nonetheless. The armor had proved himself a good friend. They smell of summer, John said, as Sir Andrew bull-rushed his foe and knocked him sprawling. Where did Conway find them? A lord's dungeon near Gulltown, the smith replied. A brigand, a barber, a beggar, two orphans, and a boy whore. With such do we defend the realms of men. They'll do. John gave Sam a private smile. We did. Noy drew him closer. You've heard these tidings of your brother. Last night, Conway and his charges had brought the news north with them, and the talk in the common room had been of little else. John was still not certain how he felt about it. Rob, a king, the brother he'd played with, fought with, shared his first cup of wine with, but not mother's milk, no. So now Rob will sip summer wine from jeweled goblets while I'm kneeling beside some stream sucking snow melt from cupped hands. Rob will make a good king, he said loyally. Will he now? The smith eyed him frankly. I hope that's so, boy, but once I might have said the same of Robert. They say you forged his war hammer, John remembered. Oi, I was his man, a Baratheon man, smith and armourer, at Storm's End until I lost the arm. I'm old enough to remember Lord Stephen before the sea took him, and I knew those three sons of his since they got their names. I tell you this, Robert 
was never the same after he put on that crown. Some men are like swords, made for fighting. Hang them up, and they go to rust. And his brothers? John asked. The armorer considered that a moment. Robert was a true steel. Annis is pure iron, black and hard and strong, yes, but brittle the way iron gets. He'll break before he bends. And Renly, that one, he's copper, bright and shiny, pretty to look at, but not worth all that much at the end of the day. And what metal is Rob? John did not ask. Nor was a Baratheon man. Likely he thought Joffrey the lawful king and Rob a traitor. Among the Brotherhood of the Night's Watch, there was an unspoken pact never to probe too deeply into such matters. Men came to the war from all of the Seven Kingdoms, and old loves and loyalties were not easily forgotten, no matter how many oaths a man swore, as John himself had good reason to know. Even Sam, his father's house was sworn to Highgarden, whose Lord Tyrell supported King Renly. Best not to talk of such things. The Night's Watch took no sides. Lord Mormont awaits us, John said. He won't keep you from the old bear. Noy clapped him on the shoulder and smiled. May the gods go with you on the morrow, Snow. You bring back that uncle of yours. Do you hear? We will, John promised him. Lord Commander Mormont had taken up residence in the King's Tower after the fire had gutted his own. John left Ghost with the guards outside the door. More stairs, said Sam miserably as they started up. I hate stairs. Well, that's one thing we won't face in the wood. When they entered the solar, the raven spied them at once. Snow! The bird shrieked. Mormon broke off his conversation. Took you long enough with those maps? He pushed the remains of breakfast out of the way to make room on the table. Put them here. I'll have a look at them later. Thorin Smallwood, a sinewy ranger with a weak chin and a weaker mouth, hidden under a thin straggle of beard, gave John and Sam a cool look. He had been one of Alistair Thor "'If you are ever Lord Commander, you may do as you please,' Mormont told the ranger. "'But it seems to me that I've not died yet, nor have the brothers put you in my place.' "'I'm first ranger now, with Ben Stark lost and Sir Jeremy killed,' Smallwood said stubbornly. "'The command should be mine.' Mormont would have none of it. "'I sent out Ben Stark and Sir Waymar before him.' I do not mean to send you after them and sit wondering how long I must wait before I give you up for lost as well. He pointed. And Stark remains first ranger until we know for a certainty that he is dead. From that day come, it will be me who names his successor, not you. I'll stop wasting my time. We ride at first light, or have you forgotten? Smallwood pushed to his feet. As my lord commands. On the way out, he frowned at John, as if it were somehow his fault. First ranger? The old bear's eyes lighted on Sam. I'd sooner name you first ranger. He has the effrontery to tell me to my face that I'm too old to ride with him. Do I look old to you, boy? 
The hare that had retreated for more months' spotted scalp had regrouped beneath his chin in a shaggy grey beard that covered much of his chest. He thumped it hard. Do I look frail? Sam opened his mouth, gave a little squeak. The old bear terrified him. Uh, no, my lord, John offered quickly. You look strong as a... a... Don't cousin me, Snow. You know I won't have it. Let me have a look at his maps. Mormon poured through them brusquely, giving each one no more than a glance and a grunt. Was this all you could find? Uh, I... M m my lord, Sam stammered, there... there were m uh, more, b b but the dis disorder... These are old, Mormon complained, and his ravens echoed him with a sharp cry of, Owled! Owled! The villagers may come and go, but the hills and rivers will be in the same places, John pointed out. True enough. Have you chosen your ravens yet, Tolly? Master Amon means to pick them come even fall after the earth feeding. I'll have his best, smart birds, and strong. Strong, his own bird said preening. Strong, strong. If it happens that we're all butchered out there, I mean for my successor to know where and how we died. Talk of butchery reduced Samuel Tarley to speechlessness. Mormont leaned forward. Tarley, when I was a lad, half your age, my lady mother told me that if I stood about with my mouth open, a weasel was like to mistake it for his lair and run down my throat. If you have something to say, say it. Otherwise, beware of weasels. He waved a brusque dismissal. Off with you. I'm too busy for folly. No doubt the maester has some work you can do. Sam swallowed, stepped back, and scurried out so quickly he almost tripped over the rushes. Is that boy as big a fool as he seems? The Lord Commander asked when he'd gone. Fool! The raven complained. Mormont did not wait for John to reply. His lord father stands high in King Renly's councils, and I had half a notion to dispatch him. No, best not. Renly is not like to heed a quaking fat boy. I'll send Sir Arnell. He's a deal steadier, and his mother was one of the green apple fossways. If it please, my lord, what would you have of King Renly? The same things I'd have of all of them, lad. Men, horses, swords, armor, grain, cheese, wine, wool, nails. The night's watch is not proud. We take what is offered. His fingers drummed against the rough-hewn planks of the table. If the winds had been kind, Sir Alistair should reach King's Landing by the turn of the moon. But whether this boy Joffrey will pay him any heed, I do not know. House Lannister has never been a friend to the watch. Thorn has the white's hand to show them. A grisly, pale thing, with black fingers it was, that twitched and stirred in its jaw as if it were still alive. Would that we had another hand to send to Renly. Dywin says you can find anything beyond the wall. Aye, Dywin says. The last time he went ranging, he said he saw a bear fifteen feet tall. <laughs> Mormont snorted. 
My sister is said to have taken a bear for a lover. I'd believe that before I believe one fifteen feet tall. Oh, in a world where dead come walking. Uh, even so, a man must believe his eyes. I have seen the dead walk. I've not seen any giant bears. He gave John a long, searching look. But we were speaking of hands, hmm? How's yours? Better. John peeled off his moleskin glove and showed him. Scars covered his arm halfway to the elbow, and the mottled pink flesh still felt tight and tender. But it was healing. It itches, though. Mr. Amos says that's good. He gave me a salve to take with me when we ride. You can wield Longclaw, despite the pain? Well enough. John flexed his fingers, opening and closing the fist the way the maester had shown him. I am to work the fingers every day to keep them nimble, as Maester Eamon said. Blind he may be, but Eamon knows what he's about. I pray the gods let us keep him another twenty years. Do you know that he might have been king? John was taken by surprise. He told me his father was king, but not... I thought him, perhaps, a younger son. As so he was. His father's father was Darren Targaryen, the second of his name, who brought Dawn into the realm. Part of the pact was that he wed a Dornish princess. She gave him four sons. Aemon's father, Makar, was the youngest of those, and Aemon was his third son. Mind you, all this happened long before I was born, ancient as Smallwood would make me. Maester Aemon was named for the Dragon Knight? So he was. Some say Prince Aemon was King Darren's true father, not Aegon the Unworthy. Be that as it may, our Aemon lacked the Dragon Knight's martial nature. He likes to say he had a slow sword but quick wits. Small wonder his grandfather packed him off to the Citadel. He was nine or ten, I believe, and ninth or tenth in the line of succession as well. Maester Eamon had counted more than a hundred name days, John knew. Frail, shrunken, wizened and blind, it was hard to imagine him as a little boy, no older than Arya. Mormont continued, Eamon was at his books when the eldest of his uncles, the heir apparent, was slain in a tawny mishap. He left two sons, but they followed him to the grave not long after, during the great spring sickness. King Darren was also taken. So the crown passed to Darren's second son, Ares. The Mad King. John was confused. Ares had been king before Robert. That wasn't so long ago. No, this was Ares I. The one Robert deposed was the second of that name. How long ago was this? Oh, eighty years, or close enough, the old bear said. And no, I still hadn't been born, although Eamon had forged half a dozen links of his maester's chain by then. Ares wed his own sister, as the Targaryens were wont to do, and reigned for ten or twelve years. Eamon took his vows and left the citadel to serve at some lordling's court until his royal uncle died without issue. The Iron Throne passed to the last of King Darren's four sons. That was Makar, Eamon's father. The new king summoned all his sons to court 
and would have made Amon part of his council, but he refused, saying that he would usurp the place rightly belonging to the Grand Maester. Instead, he served at the keep of his eldest brother, another Darren. Well, that one died too, leaving only a feeble-witted daughter's heir, some pox he caught from a whore, I believe. Uh, the next brother was Arian. Arian the Monstrous? John knew that name. The prince who thought he was a dragon was one of old Nan's more gruesome tales. His little brother Bran had loved it. Uh, the very one, though he named himself Arian Brightflame. One night, in his cups, he drank a jar of wildfire after telling his friends it would transform him into a dragon. But the guards were kind, and it transformed him into a corpse. Not quite a year after, King Maker died in a battle against an outlaw lord. John was not entirely innocent of the history of the realm. His own maester had seen to that. That was the year of the great council, he said. The lords passed over Prince Arian's infant son and Prince Darren's daughter and gave the crown to Aegon. Yes and no. First, they offered it quietly to Aemon, and quietly he refused. The gods meant for him to serve, not to rule, he told them. He had sworn a vow and would not break it, though the High Septon himself offered to absolve him. Well, no sane man wanted any blood of Arians on the throne. Darren's girl was a lackwit besides being female, so they had no choice but to turn to Aemon's younger brother, Aegon, the fifth of his name. Aegon the Unlikely, they called him, born the fourth son of a fourth son. Aemon knew, and rightly, that if he remained at court, those who disliked his brother's rule would seek to use him. So he came to the wall, and here he has remained, while his brother and his brother's son and his son each reigned and died in turn, until Jamie Lannister put an end to the line of the Dragon Kings. King, croaked the raven. The bird flapped across the solar to land on Mormont's shoulder. King, it said again, strutting back and forth. He likes that word, John said, smiling. An easy word to say. <laughs> An easy word to like. King, the bird said again. I think he means for you to have a crown, my lord. <laughs> the realm has three kings already, and that's two too many for my liking. Mormon stroked the raven under the beak with a finger, but all the while his eyes never left Jon Snow. It made him feel odd. My lord, why have you told me this about Maester Aemon? Must I have a reason? Mormont shifted in his seat, frowning. Your brother, Rob, has been crowned king in the north. You and Aemon have that in common, a king for a brother. And this, too, said John, a vow. The old bear gave a loud snort, and the raven took flight, flapping in a circle about the room. <laughs> Give me a man for every vow I've seen broken, and the wall will never lack for defenders. I've always known that Rob would be lord of Winterfell. Mormont gave a whistle, and the bird flew to him again and settled on his arm. A lord's one thing, king's another. He offered the raven a handful of corn from his pocket. 
They will garb your brother Rob in silk, satins, and velvets of a hundred different colors, while you live and die in black ringmail. He will wed some beautiful princess and father sons on her. You'll have no wife, nor will you ever hold a child of your own blood in your arms. Rob will rule. You will serve. Men will call you a crow. Him they'll call your grace. Singers will praise every little thing he does, while your grace's deeds all go unsung. Tell me that none of this troubles you, John, and I'll name you a liar. I know I have the truth of it. John drew himself up, taut as a bowstring. And if it did trouble me, what might I do, bastard as I am? What will you do? Mormont asked. Bastard as you are. Be troubled, said John, and keep my vows. Catelyn. Her son's crown was fresh from the forge, and it seemed to Catelyn Stark that the weight of it pressed heavy on Rob's head. The ancient crown of the Kings of Winter had been lost three centuries ago, yielded up to Aegon the Conqueror, when Torren Stark knelt in submission. What Aegon had done with it, no man could say. Lord Huster Smith had done his work well, and Rob's crown looked much as the other was said to have looked. In the tales told of the Stark kings of old, an open circlet of hammered bronze, incised with the runes of the first men, surmounted by nine black iron spikes wrought in the shape of longswords. Of gold and silver and gemstones, it had none. Bronze and iron were the metals of winter, dark and strong to fight against the cold. As they waited in River Run's great hall for the prisoner to be brought before them, she saw Rob push back the crown so it rested upon the thick auburn mop of his hair. Moments later, he moved it forward again. Later, he gave it a quarter turn, as if that might make it sit more easily on his brow. It is no easy thing to wear a crown, Catelyn thought, watching, especially for a boy of fifteen years. When the guards brought in the captive, Rob called for his sword. Oliver Frey offered it up, hilt first, and her son drew the blade and laid it bare across his knees. A threat plain for all to see. Your Grace, here is the man you asked for, announced Robin Rygar, captain of the Tolly household guard. Kneel before the king, Lannister, Theon Greyjoy shouted. Sir Robin forced the prisoner to his knees. He did not look a lion, Catelyn reflected. This Sir Cleos Frey was the son of the Lady Jenna, who was sister to Lord Tywin Lannister. But he had none of the fabled Lannister beauty, the fair hair and green eyes. Instead, he had inherited the stringy brown locks, weak chin, and thin face of his sire, Sir Eamon Frey, old Lord Walder's second son. His eyes were pale and watery, and he could not seem to stop blinking. But perhaps that was only the light. The cells below River Run were dark and damp, 
and these days crowded as well. Rise, Sir Cleos. Her son's voice was not as icy as his father's would have been, but he did not sound a boy of fifteen either. War had made a man of him before his time. Morning light glimmered faintly against the edge of the steel across his knees. Yet it was not the sword that made Sir Cleos Frey anxious. It was the beast. Grey Wind, her son, had named him. A dire wolf large as any elk hound, lean and smoke-dark, with eyes like molten gold. When the beast padded 